morning. Good morning, Brent. Good morning, Dolroot family. Around the Lori. Hi, Dale. See you. Shabbat Dr. P. Shabbat How are you? All right. There's then David. Let's see. Maddox. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Hi. How are you, Lori? Fine. Doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing all right. Good. I'm, uh, today I'm at an undisclosed location. Okay, let's see. I should be getting better volume than this, but I'm not, so it's going to be a little bit of a strain hearing today, but we'll be okay. Yes, I'm at an undisclosed location somewhere deep in Alaska. Actually, it's at a, another fellow member of this particular Shabbat group. We're at his house here today. And let's, let's just keep adding people as we go. Oh, there's Drew. Good. Hello, Linda Maddox. How are you? Shalom. All right. And there's Murray. He's coming in. Okay, let's see here. Shabbat Shalom, Dr. Pigeon. Shabbat Shalom, Olise. How are you, my good brother? I'm good on yourself, sir. Very good. Very good. Shabbat Shalom. Hi, Hillary. I see you there. Shalom, Stephen. Hi, Dr. P. Hi, Shalom. Hey, Mark, good to see you. Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, Judy. Hi. Shabbat Shalom, Dr. P. Hi, Joy Rittman. How are you? Hi. I'm doing well. Yourself? Very good. Very good. I mean, truthfully, you want to know the truth of it? I didn't get much sleep yeah. last night. Well, we had a very hi. good discussion going on here. And, uh, if the discussion was too good. And finally, Stephanie said, look, that's it. I'm going to bed. You people keep yak, yak, <laughs> yakking. I've had enough. I've had it. I'm going to bed. Well, what time was that? 2.30 in the morning, right? Oh, my gosh. So it was just a few hours ago. But we talked about a lot of things. We were talking in particular about, you know, what this next year is going to look like. And... Mm -hmm really kind of the kind of thing we're up to. And are you going to share? Well, uh, if you'd like me to, sure. So we've been talking about a lot of the research we've been doing on Sefer Academy. And of course, you know, Sefer Academy, we've had a couple of classes that have been very, very interesting. Ancient Days, of course, was one of them. And the geography class. And in the geography class, we've been we've been really doing an in-depth look at various places. You know, so there's, I have a number of young people in that class and I wanted to make sure they knew where Ukraine was and where Russia was. I don't know. I don't know if you remember the, the gal that did the, uh, she was in a beauty contest and they asked her, 
you know, why do people, why are Americans so challenged with geography? And she said, well, uh, a lot of people don't have maps and such and Iraq and Iran and, <laughs> and she went on and on and on. But the point she was making was that a lot of people don't have maps. And I thought to myself, yeah, that's true. A lot of people don't have maps and they don't teach geography in public schools. So many Americans, they don't know anything. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen the Mark Dice videos, but, you know, he interviews people there in L.A. And uh, can you tell me which president the nation's capital was named after? You know, 15 people in a row can't tell you. Finally, he has to ask an Italian tourist who's visiting the country to tell, to tell us who the nation's capital was named after. And uh, anyway, it is an amazing level of, well, ignorance is the true word, you know. Oh, that is here. But I wanted to make sure the first thing my students knew was, can you find what? Hi, James and Maria Isabel. Good morning. Hi, Shabbat, Shabbat Shalom, Dr. Gary. Shalom, Dr. Gary Salama still needs in. I'm sorry? Gary Salama needs so, in. I'm so trying to get everybody sister. in. We've got, I've got a list here of uh, Hi, Joy. people Hi, Joy. trying to get in. Hi, good to see you all. Yeah, same here. Your hair looks beautiful today. Oh, thank you. It's just washing. Dry. Yeah. Watch them both dry, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Sorry for the interruption. Oh, no problem. So at any rate, I wanted to make sure they knew where at least they could point out Russia on that. Well, Even that's good. It's the largest nation on earth. They should be able to go to the map and go, yeah, there it is right there. <laughs> and so we, we kind of started in, so we started into uh, a very acute discussion and, and we've been doing really close, close review. And because there's so many tools on Google Earth that allow you to really get in and look, you know. And so we've spent time uh, looking at very closely at places uh, across the world. And in part of this research, we're finding things that we didn't know were true. And of course, part know, of this with our research, what we've been talking about with where did the exodus really go? And that is a that's a large question. And so we've been trying to find out. Nobody's coming down with any hard answer, but we're trying to find out where in fact this all took place. And so we were discussing, we were talking about the parameters of it. And then of course we discussed everything else, you know, the condition of the world, what's going on here, what's going on there. And we also talked a great deal about uh, delivering the name of Yahweh to people and, and just in transmitting the name and what takes place with the delivery of the name and how people's lives are changed. Now, some people are very cold to the idea of hearing the name. They don't want to hear it at all. Uh, but it's just as, you know, disciplines. Excuse me. I've got a Cold War veteran in here sneaking in on the floor. Anyway, the uh, one of the things we talked about concerning the name was, well, uh, it's just as the Gospels tell you. They tell you that, look, sometimes seed is planted on hard soil. And you know, you put the seed down and the wind comes up and blows it away and that's it. 
And sometimes it's planted on shallow soil. People hear the name and they're like, oh yeah, that's great. And it sprouts for a little bit. And the next thing you know, they're back to the Nimrod tree and saying Yahweh and Yeshua. And some people it takes in deep soil and it becomes a rooted plant. And, you know, it, it amazes me really that since I began on this journey, that the aspects of the gospel really come true. They really become true. And when I'm talking about the aspects of the gospel that come true, I'm talking about persecution. You shall be hated for my namesake. It's written. You shall be cast aside by your family members. You know, your brothers and your sisters, your husbands, your wives, they will hate you for my namesake. You will be cast out of the synagogue for my namesake, right? And this is the kind of teaching that's in the gospel. And when you're in the church of Jesus, this doesn't happen. You're all kind of going down the broad path. You know, you're hanging out at women's ministries or men's ministries. You're doing this and you're doing that. Everything is just groovy and, you know, and fine. And the congregation is big and joyous and happy. But there's nobody being persecuted. There's nobody being hated. There's nobody being cast out over a name. It's not happening. But when you see the delivery of the kinds of teaching going on with Yasha teaching what was happening and laying these things out, I just found that suddenly the gospel became true to me, became very true. And in the truth of that uh, sits, um, sits the reality of the faith. And so, like I say, for many people, uh, it's the name lands on hard soil. They'd rather hear a prosperity gospel. They'd rather be accepted in the social club they call a church. Even though when they go to the church, they know they're getting false teaching. They know they're getting very shallow teaching. You know, the kind of teaching they're getting is what? I'm going to give you one spoonful of pablum. Let's talk about the widow's mite today. Let's talk about the Good Samaritan. Now, there's nothing wrong with those teachings. But year after year after year after year, you're being spoon-fed one tablespoon of pablum. When you look at how much meat there is on the table to dig into, to explore, to find, and to come to understand. And as a consequence, you have, uh, you have people that just don't know. And so we come to them and we say, okay, look, like, for instance, let me give you an example. What about the difference, right? What difference has your faith made in your life? What about the difference? Now, a lot of people think, well, the difference that I have to have is I have to start feeling guilty about my transgressions. You know, mea culpa, mea culpa. May a maxima culpa. But this is not the call of Yah at all. Does it, do you read anywhere in the Ten Commandments where it says, Thou shalt feel guilty? Yeah. I'm on my it's, call. It's now. just yeah. not there. It's not there. And so what you see truly what Yah is telling us is he's telling telling you, follow my command. Well, we have Skylar's birthday party this afternoon. But you can yes, talk we need to you them. Totally Pardon me. Excuse me. Yeah, thank you. Got it. 
he's he tells us look when you came out of egypt if you want to go out and sacrifice a bull go sacrifice a bull in the flesh but i didn't tell you to do that when i brought you out of egypt that isn't what i told you go look at the commandments and see if there's anywhere in the ten commandments that says you shall kill an animal it's not there Instead, I said to you, obey my voice. Then you shall be my people and I shall be your Elohim. Obey my voice. And I don't want you sacrificing and seeking forgiveness. I don't want you running around paying for an indulgence. I don't want you paying off a preacher so he can give you permission to sin. I want you to obey my voice. You know, it's like when you're a parent. I don't want you figuring out a formal a, a formula that keeps you from getting a spanking when you're a child. I want you to do what I ask you to do. And this is the same thing with Yah. He wants us to do what he asks us to do. And what does Mashiach tell us? Look, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. I give you the commands of life, not the commands of death. I give you the commands of life. Strip down your life from all of its garbage and follow this simple way of life. You know, it, uh, you know, when you look at Mashiach, right? You know he ate bread and fish. We know that. That's very clear in the Gospels. He ate both bread and fish. But he told people, man does not live by bread alone, right? There's more to it than that. But you can see that in life, we have this natural disposition. We were talking last night, one of the things we were talking about, and Rod brought it up. He said, look, what if there's a nuclear war and it goes on over the United States? How are we going to know when to plant, when to harvest? How do we know what time it is? How do we know what day it is? And I said, oh, that's easy. We have the sun, the moon, and the stars, and they tell us the whole story. You know, if you know the the waxing moon, the waxing gibbous that goes from a dark moon all the way to a full moon, and then you have the waning. So the waxing is this: the light is on the right side of the moon, and when it's waning, the light is on the left side of the moon. If you understand that, you can tell what day of the month it is just by looking up at the moon. And I said, up here where we live, you look out in the sky at night, you can tell what time it is just by looking at the Big Dipper. The Big Dipper moves 23.7 degrees every hour. And when you come to memorize that, you can learn, you can tell exactly what time it is in the night by looking at the stars. Now, similarly, you can do the same thing in the day by looking at the trans, at the, uh, at the, tra um, by looking at the motion of the sun and how the sun moves, you can tell what time it is during the day. No matter what climate you're in, you can learn those things. And so the only thing you have to worry about is learning the vernal equinox. And you can learn the vernal equinox, very simple, by when Spica, the star in the left hand of Virgo, rises above the event horizon. When you see Spica above the event horizon, that is the first month of the year, because the barley is in a bead. So as Yah tells us in Genesis 1.14, use the greater light, the lesser light, and the stars also for signs, 
seasons, days, and years. Now, it's a very natural formula. And you have a very natural thing in the what they call the Paradise Torah. The Paradise Torah tells you, hey, look, go forth and multiply and fill the earth. Right? I mean, these are very simple things. And in these simple things, when you look at the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments call you to a lifetime of quality because they're not a quantitative completion. They are a qualitative completion. Thou shalt not bear false witness is an art form. Thou shalt not covet is a personal discipline. Thou shalt have no false gods before me is a daily audit. Thou shalt guard my Shabbat. Also an incredibly important, incredibly important aspect. So you can see that we have these kinds of things. There's nothing about guilt. So when you say, okay, well, tell me about what is this gospel formula that we can learn in sharing the word? Well, what is the first commandment? The first commandment is get people into my church, get them baptized and teach them how to tithe. I don't recall reading that. Anywhere. The first commandment is love Yah with all your heart, your mind, and your soul. So we were talking about this, and Rod was talking about how he was trying to get a business deal with this guy who was a very high-placed CEO. And he knew his name, and he kept calling, and he could never get through. It was like, you don't, you know, you call him, you're asking for him. No, you're not ever going to talk. Now, imagine that you wanted to do a business deal. And you said, the financier is the guy who owns this company. And you called up the front desk and you said, can you give me the owner, please? How many people are going to connect you to the owner? Can you put me in touch with your boss's boss, please? Can you connect me with the CEO? Can you connect me with the president? Uh, you don't know his name? No, I don't know his name. You're not talking to him. You don't even know his name. Why are you calling here? You don't even know his name. It says something about heaven, does it not? And when we talk about declaring the name, what does Yahusha say in John 17? I have declared your, your name unto them. Well, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus teach that all your prayers should start with dear Jesus? No, that's not what he taught. Didn't Jesus come out and say, you know what? My, I am the name. So when you read John 17, it should read, I have declared my name unto them. Telling them that they need to do everything in my name. What do you think about that? Yeah. Is that what he said? Nope. I have declared your name unto them and will declare it that the love of you that is in me 
might be in them and I in them. Now, when you see that kind of a thing, you can see that the first thing that happens is in order for you to teach a relationship to the Father, you know, I've heard this in, I don't know how many, a billion churches. It's all about relationship. It's all about relationship. Okay, well, let's say you're going to have a relationship with your spouse-to-be. You meet the right person, you're going to get married. How well is that relationship going to go when you don't know your future spouse's name? How well does that go? Uh, hey, uh, what's your face? Um, no, it's it's just not going to go at all. So the very first thing that introduces a person to a relationship with the father is the name of the father. That's the very first thing. Now, when you're talking about come out of her, my people, lest she share in her sins. Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins. What does that mean? How do you come out? Oh, well, you know, you start by figuring out what the church says is a transgression. And the church tells you, you know, these are the transgressions. And, and the only way you can get free of the guilt of these transgressions is to confess these transgressions to the guy we call father. And once you confess your transgressions to the guy we call father, he can grant you forgiveness on earth because he's here as the emissary of Christ on earth. Now, is that what Yah called us to? When you look at the Torah, the Torah has a series of commands, Moshe's Torah, and it has a series of specific penalties for the violation of those commands. There's no guilt associated with that either. Certain of those penalties were death. Other penalties were you were cast out of the community. Other penalties had to do with you paying money and remuneration for what you had done. And then finally, they would say, oh, well, the sins of commission can be redeemed with an animal sacrifice. But Yah specifically addresses that and said, I never told you to do that. I told you to obey my voice. And then what is the one passage of scripture that the Shiat quotes twice? Haven't you read, I desire mercy and not sacrifice? He quotes that twice. Haven't you read, I desire mercy and not sacrifice? So the duty of man can be summed up in Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what does Yah desire of you? To act justly to love mercy, and to walk humbly with Yah. Now, this is, this is, you know, this is an easy burden and a light yoke. But when you talk about this as a burden and a yoke, you do have a duty to act justly. And in acting justly, this means that you do not 
render judgment on another person without the testimony of two or three witnesses before you convict them with your mouth. That is acting justly, using a reasonable mind to judge critically with what you see around you. Very important point. And to love mercy. And even though you may judge a person and say that person is in the transgression of the Torah, can you love that person with mercy? Can you do that? Because what you see in the, in the life of Shia is the gift of love. Yah demonstrates his love for us. That Mashiach died for us while we get his enemies. And the message of Yah is that is to extend love to those who are unlovable. To extend forgiveness to those who are completely undeserving of forgiveness. Now, is that something to feel guilty about? So when we talk about the ways of following Yah, okay, it's simple. You have the 10 Devarim right in front of you. And the 10 Devarim are a lifetime journey. When Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he's talking about you understanding the qualitative state of obedience to the 10 commandments. Is it possible to love Yah more? Yes, it is. Are you loving him with your whole mind, heart, and soul? Well, maybe not. Is it possible to increase that? Yes. Is it possible to love your neighbor greater than what you do? Is it possible for you to be more gentle, to be more kind, to be more forgiving? Absolutely it is, especially when you're driving. And you know what I'm talking about, you road rage guys with the highway sign. You know, <laughs> you know it's possible to be a lot more forgiving and to understand what's happening on the road. And, and guess what? And to understand that concept of share the highway. Share the road. Right? And when we get into these kinds of ideas, we can, we, we can begin to see that, yeah, we can be a lot kinder. We can be a lot nicer. And we can always be offering repentance and forgiveness and Yah's mercy to those around us, even those we don't like. What does it say? Yada yawa, kitov ki laulam kastu. We give thanks to you, Yawa, for you are good and your mercy endures forever. And yet we hear the cry in heaven, how long, Yah? How long? How long must we wait for the vengeance of our Elohim? And why is it taking so long? Because his mercy endures forever. And he was merciful enough to wait on us, the children of transgression, for us to see. Why shouldn't he wait for others? We don't want that. 
we came through the door and now slammed the door behind us. So what I'm saying to you is when we look at the way, how do we come out of Babylon? Well, the first way we come out of Babylon is to leave Sunday. That is the first way you come out of Babylon, is you leave Roman Sunday. And you begin to honor Yaz Shabbat. And when you begin to honor Yaz Shabbat, what happens? You structure a new rhythm in your life. You have a new rhythm. Your new rhythm is work six days and take the seventh day off. And once you understand that Shabbat, then you begin to understand the sevenfold doctrine of his whole creation. Once you're in the rhythm of the seven days, you begin to understand the sevenfold doctrine of his whole creation. Then the beauty of exploring scriptures explodes in front of you. Now you're no longer with the burden of having to read, and Abraham begat Yitzhak, and Yitzhak begat Yaakov, Yaakov begat Judah, Judah begat Perez, and on and on and on it goes. While you're going, eh, I'm not going to get through this room. And suddenly you find yourself going, this has exploded on the page. Look at this. There's buried treasure right here in chapter five that I never saw before. It's like, I remember when we first found this, when we first came to this understanding that this is a treasure hunt. This is the adventure of a lifetime that there is just, it's like finding King Solomon's mines. This is ridiculous. There's so much treasure in this thing. How did we ever miss this stuff? As one of my friends said, yeah, all of a sudden we're reading that portion of the Bible where the gold pages are still stuck together. You know, never been opened before. And you open and you read it and you're reading them and you're going, unbelievable, unbelievable, unbelievable. I mean, I have to tell you, I'm still in that situation right now. Like, let me give you an, let me give you an idea. Now, I don't have the full, I don't have the full answer on all of this, but I just want to show you something quick whiteboard. So we know something that's kind of interesting, which is that. We know that, uh, here, where's my little thing here? We know that this word here, if we put this word in, if we put up the Av, the Dalit, and the Mem. Okay, so we know that this word is what? Adam, right? Adam. All right. Now, part of what we talk about uh, in looking at this is that this may might be a prefix. And the Aleph as a prefix means I shall be. I shall be. That's what the Aleph as a prefix means. Not just I shall, but I shall be. Well, then the next question is, is this a primary root of a word? And the answer is yes, this is Dom. And Dom means what? Blood. So the word Adam 
means I shall be blood. Now, you might ask yourself, well, what kind of blood? Answer, red blood, right? Because we know that Adam is, actually, is also Adom, meaning red. All right, now take a look at this. In the Sefer, we don't say Sodom, do we? But we were talking last night. Well, where was Mashiach crucified? Well, in the Revelation, it says he was crucified in he was crucified in Sodom and Egypt. Sodom and Egypt. Okay. So, but we don't spell it as Sodom in the in the Sefer. We spell it as Sidon. Now, Sidon is spelled like this. You have Samek. Aleph. Dalet. Mem. Now, you can see here, this is Sodom. Okay? Sidon. When you see this, what can we see? Is it possible that this is a prefix? And if it's a prefix, this would be the primary. And what primary is this? Edom. And does this prefix here mean of? So Sidon turns out to be very prophetic. It's telling you that it is of Edom. Of Edom. So when we looked at this map last night, we were looking at the map. We came to conclude that, particularly given the, the new information coming out of the book Yokai Pyramid, that the house of Esau, you know, when you read in Jasher, Esau killed Nimrod and took garments of Adam and Eve. Well, the important point about that story is, is that Esau became a very powerful ruler who overtook the world ruler. And his son then became the pharaohs, beginning with Seti I. And so I was reading in Genesis 35 last night, 36, rather, beginning in chapter 15, talking about the sons of Esau. Why are all these sons called dukes? What's this whole roster, this huge list of names? What are they doing there? And why would the scripture spend so much time on the sons of Esau? Because they became the pharaohs of Egypt. And so Edom, when you're talking about Mount Zaire, Egypt went all the way practically to Tunisia and all the way back up into what we now call Palestine. That was Egypt. That was Edomia. That was Edom. That was governed by the house of Esau that reached all the way across. So you see that, and even now we know that these, the Palestinian people 
They don't want to talk about that. Oh, the Palestinian people were Philistines. No, Philistines long since. The Palestinian people are almost all Egyptians. And so what you see is when Revelation tells you that Mashiach was crucified, where? Sodom in Egypt. That's what's written in Revelation. I didn't write it. He was crucified in Sodom and Egypt. So it tells you that this area that we call Palestine today was part of Idumea. It was part of Egypt. It was part, this was, it's an accurate description in the book of Revelation. It's accurate. And so this becomes something significant as well. So in understanding the death of Mashiach, and how, how it was that Mashiach died. You know, we talked about this in the Scarlet Thread. He was the Lamb of Elohim who would take away the sins of the world. And that was destined from the day Peretz breached the womb of Tamar and supplanted himself in front of Zarak, who had been marked with the red ribbon. And Zarak would be cast into the wilderness as the scapegoat and has been scapegoated ever since. Okay. So, all right, let's take a couple of, uh, Raina, good morning to you, sister. Hi, Raina. Bokertov. 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 Okay. <laughs> Well, you know, I'm, that's how I was taught. Sorry. That's okay. The, yeah, it's been dealing with me about, I've talked about it before, that Eitz Chaim, the Paleo-Hebrew, when you put the Aleph on the top, that's that that was there all along. Yeah, if, if you look at Bereshit, he doesn't reveal Hold it. On one second, just one second, one second. I'm not hearing you. Just one second. Hey, try it now, Raina. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you now. There we go. Hold okay. On. When you look at Bereshit, where Yad gave us the his Devarim, that he put the tree of life in the Gan Eden. Right. That's that's the Aleph and the Tau. When you look at it in the Paleo Hebrew, because Hua and Edom, because as you so stated that he has been showing me the blood. We like to look at the tree of knowledge of good and evil instead of that tree of life, which was very obscure, not desiring to the eye, the iron. Yes. But from the, the very I, beginning, he was there. 
He was there. Yad put him right there in front of everyone. If we want to look at it. But we don't. We want to self serve ourselves like uh, who was it that said that she uh, we're serving me, myself, and I. Yeah, the Holy Trinity. The Holy Trinity. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And we all come out of religions. Whether you call yourself Jewish, <laughs> which is a joke, or other facets of whatever you want to call yourself. Well, now, Raina, I want to say this about Jewishness, okay? Mm -hmm. The thing is with, with uh, the Jewish religion, you know, this is a religion that is steeped, of course, in the Talmud. Right. And and the Talmud is delivered very early on, right? So yes. uh, uh, a young person is getting is handed the Talmud, and it's really uh, kind of a very high-pressure environment. There's nothing but the Talmud. You shall learn to speak a certain amount of Hebrew so you can get through your bat mitzvah or your bar mitzvah, you know, right. and, all, and the, all of these kinds of things. And when you're going through that process, there is no critical review of the Talmud. In fact, you're told you accept it as it is. You accept it as it is without change. And you accept its tenets. And now, you know, as I look back on the Talmud now, and I realize the Talmud is maybe the most wicked document ever put together by any group of human beings, ever. It's an extremely wicked document. Well, they assert that you have to read the... The, Ham, uh, the Humash, the Talmud, you know, the rabbi's writings, which are supposed to be the utmost authority on. Yeah, yeah. The Gemara. The the your Mishnah. religion. Yeah. And, the Gemara. And, yeah, the Gemara. And, you know, and the, the thing is with the, with the Mishnah and the Gemara, you know, the rabbis had opinions. And, you know, one thing we're taught in Christianity is that all there's no one good, not one. All people have sinned and fall short of the glory of Yah. There's no human being that is going to be able to give you a gift that, that has got any kind of really truth in it unless it's being given to them by the Ruach HaKadosh. If it's not given by the Ruach HaKadosh, it's probably going to be full of error, full of everything else. And some of the errors that were made by the rabbis are really quite huge huge and so as a result because of this rise of rabbinical authority in the babylonian talmud i think that the the talmud creates a kind of psychosis and it's a psychosis created upon the idea we're the chosen people we are you know racially superior we are racially far above everyone else on earth Everyone else on earth was only here to serve us. And, you know, and then you get the, and these are commands really kind of hidden in the Talmud. They're not seen initially. They're not seen at the yeshiva, you know, not at, for, not in the first 10 years. That's certainty. But after you clear the bar mitzvah, these things become more and more pronounced. And when you, by the time you graduate and get into Chabad Lubavitch, it's directly in your face. You know, you've read the teachings of Rabbi Schneerson, 
right? And the kinds of things he said in Hebrew. The goyim are only here to serve the Jew. To serve, yeah. Yeah, they're just animals, human form. You can kill them. You can rape their daughters. You can do whatever. And this kind of psychosis, it creates a psychosis that is so deep that it, the generational sin, if you will, is present for four generations. So Hitler was looking not for people who necessarily practice Jews, but were their parents practicing Jews? Were their grandparents practicing Jews? Were their great-grandparents practicing Jews? So he was willing to assign the guilt of the great-grandparents to the younger person, down to four generations, right? And so you would see many people who were Jewish came out of the Jewish faith into Christianity and because they were trying to remove themselves from that psychosis. So and that they, they wouldn't be persecuted. So they wouldn't be persecuted. That's a big yeah. part of it. Yeah. yeah. And and the problem is, is that I think most people do not understand that there is not a Jewish race. True. It is a Jewish religion and it is a mindset. And the mindset, and again, the Torah tells us, not the Talmud, but the Torah tells us, you cannot assign guilt to a person based upon the sins of their father. Now, there may be epigenetic memory and there may be all these other things that are carried with you for up to four generations, but you cannot assign guilt to a person based upon the sins of their father, just as you cannot assign guilt on the father for the sins of the son. And so this is kind of very individualistic in the Torah, but it's very true. And so to have somebody like Hitler come in and say, oh, they're of the Jewish race, it's absurd. Just like he claimed to be an Aryan, that was also absurd, especially since he was the illegitimate son of a Rothschild. You know, but this was the kind of thing that was occurring. And so all of that kind of stuff was really nonsense. And why should Hitler be the dispositive person determining as who's a Jew and who isn't? How is it that Hitler, you know, if you can come to Israel and say, my parents were in a concentration camp during World War II. You're automatically Jewish. Yep. You know, and how how is Hitler the dispositive voice as to who's what? Right? How did Hitler get that position? Right? Why are we giving him such authority? And so, uh, at any rate, when we talk about the Talmud, the Talmud does create a psychosis. It creates a psychosis. And from that psychosis, you cannot get free without a full repentance. And the full repentance is, and you know, and I think part of this has to do with the fact that when the Talmud was created, it was created by people who were not Jews. True. But uh, what I'm what I see is that uh, those that used to go to synagogue or shul, whatever you want to call it. Okay, we we all have been serving Hashem Dai. All. Exactly. That's exactly right. It's been serving Hashem Dai. That's correct. And and what's so what's even more crazy about it is now that when we, we come to and we start looking at these names, we say, okay, let's pull these names out. Let's see what's there. Bali. Bali. Hmm. Right? Correct. Uh Gad, you know, God. Okay. The mm -hmm. God the, the God of good luck. Yeah. Right? And Hashem Dai. I mean, these are identified in 
in the in the Tana, they're identified. And Hashem Dai in particular is such a wicked, wicked God of lust. And so when you see, when you when you say, okay, look, we're going to turn, we're going to develop this faith, Hillel the Elder, Samai, you know, first century Yerushalmi Talmud. Mm-hmm. They're developing this faith. What did they conclude? Well, you can't light the menorah. That's illegal. Yeah. You can only light the Hanukkah. That's legal. But you can't light the menorah. That's illegal. You can't say the name Yahweh. You, you can only say Hashem. Well, mm-hmm. and, and what they didn't tell you was they weren't just saying the name. They were saying Hashem died. And the worship was of a different God. It was a worship of the God of lust. Well, what do you think is going to happen? The next thing you know, the Talmud says there's six sexes. Did you know that? It is the Talmud that says there's six sexes. There, it's not in Hindu religion. It's not in Islam. Mm-hmm. It's not in communist doctrine. It's not in Shintoism. It's not in Taoism. It's not in Buddhism. It appears only in the Talmud. And in the Talmud, they say there's six sexes. Now do you wonder why there's a six-colored rainbow flag representing it? You shouldn't. The six-colored oh. rainbow flag is asserts the sovereignty of the Talmud. All religions have one thing in common. They all have rituals. And they're all men, man-made rituals. That's exactly right. That when is- you go to the synagogue, all the, you know, you read from the not from the Torah or the you read from from the books, from the from the Talmud, right? So it's and rituals. Rab- and Rabbi Yochai said, and the Rambam said, right? And and, and you know the, this Rabbi, that Rabbi said, yes. The premise, and and by the time mm-hmm. they're done, I mean that's why I'm saying you, you know the the Torah says, "Thou shalt do no, no servile work on the Shabbat." Well, Rabbi, you know, Hillel the Elder said, that means you can't do anything except go into a coma on Friday night. Mm-hmm. Inhaling has to be involuntary, you know. This is the kind of discussion that you get from the rabbis, right? They spend too much yeah. time talking about how many angels you get on the head of a pin. And so as a consequence, but you're right. I mean, and look, even though I'm kind of picking on the, the formation of the Talmud, you know, Catholicism is equally anathema to the scripture. If you go back and you look at the seven Constantinian councils that created Catholicism, you know, there's a great study out there that looked at the, the minutes of the Council of Nicaea when they were debating on the name of the Messiah they were going to lift. And there was a huge discussion about whether or not they were going to use the name Krishna or the Greek Christos. Mm-hmm. And they eventually named, they eventually came on a Greek form of Zeus. He is huh. But it was the Latin church in the house of Esau. The house of Esau. And this right. is one of the things that we discovered oh, yeah. by looking at Yokade. That Yokade shows that Esau took over the pharaohs. And the pharaohs took over Rome. Rome didn't conquer Egypt. Egypt migrated into the Italian peninsula and pushed back the Etruscans to take control. That's why the IHS is central to the Roman church. 
Isis, Horus, Seth was the cult of the pharaohs who were the house of Esau. And we know this. Look at this. I'm just, I want to show this to you guys one more time. And we're talking about the name. When you look at the idea of Yah, right? We know a couple of things. We know that uh, that in the name Yah, we have this idea of Yod Hey. And the Yod Hey Yah takes on another form in Yahu, meaning those of Yah. And then we say Yod Hey Bab Hey I am he who breathes life. But there's another extension to the end of this, which is not I am he who breathes life, but rather we plug in a different extension, which is this. Sha. I am he who saves, who delivers, right? Who atones. Yahusha. Mm -hmm. Now, we have another word that takes these three letters right here and inverts them and says, well, let's just put those backwards. I am he who doesn't save. I am he who doesn't deliver. Okay. So here's that word. How is that word pronounced in the English Bible? Anybody know? Esau. Esau. Now, the problem with this Esau, this is part of the Roman deception. We're going to give you the name Esau and so that you can't see the deception. And we're going to give you the name Jesus so you can't see the deception. We're going to put a J there, so we're going to keep you away from the truth of what we have done. And we're going to give you a mispronunciation of Esau. So, you know, one of the guys who appeared on Jeffrey Epstein's list was the former Israeli prime minister, Ehud Barak. Barak. Yeah, Ehud Barak. Now, you know how you spell Ehud? You spell it mm -hmm. like this. You spell it ayin, he, vav, dalit. So how is this ayin pronounced in the name Ehud? It's pronounced a. E. So is this Esau? Mm -hmm. Is Ehud pronounced Ehud? No. This is, so the first thing we know is that this Esau is going to begin with A, not E. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's the first thing we know. All right. Now, what else do we know? Whoop. Kind of blew that one. We know that the, hold on, my computer is just kind of going nuts here. It's doing all kinds of crazy things. Okay, can you guys, still, can you still hear me, Raina? Yes. Okay, so let's take a look at this. We know that the ayin is pronounced A. Then we see in Mashiach, it's a shin. But if this is inverted, this has to be a scene. Then we have the vav. How's the vav pronounced? Ooh. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is pronounced ooh. This is pronounced sa, and this is pronounced a. a. 
So the correct pronunciation of Esau is actually a suit. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, how did the Romans spell the name of Mashiach? They spelled it like this. Hmm. And how was that pronounced? Yesu. Yesu. How did the Germans pronounce it? They spell it like this. J-E-S-U. How did they pronounce it in German? Yesu. Hmm. So you can kind of see it pretty clearly that the Roman church changed the name of the Messiah over to Esau. Unless you guys believe that Mary named her son Esau. So we're dealing with some pretty serious issues, are we not? We're dealing with come out of her, my people. We're dealing with come out of her, my people. And when you're talking about that, so when we talk about, when you're talking about sharing the faith with somebody, you begin with the name Iowa. Do you know his name? Do you know his name? I asked a group of the most powerful Christian pastors in Seattle. You guys are sitting here praising his name for the last 20 minutes. Lord, we lift your name on high. Your name is exalted. Your name is a strong tower. It's a mighty forge, fortress. Your name, your name, your name. Funny, I said, hey, you guys have been praising the name for 20 minutes. What is it? What's his name? And they were speechless. These were the shepherds over tens of thousands of people in Washington. And they were speechless. They couldn't name him. And more importantly, now, they won't name him. And so when you see these things become pretty clear, you can see that Rome, which is the house of Esau, captured the scriptures when they translated them into Greek in the Septuagint. They captured the scriptures and they rewrote them in order to deliver to us Roman dominion. And so when you say to yourself and when you say to your friends, can you come out of her, my people? Can you come out of her, my people? And the answer is, yes, you can. But you have to recognize that when you come out of her, everything that was written in the gospel is going to be in your face. You will be persecuted and hated for my name's sake. They will drag you in front of the synagogue to accuse you. You will be hated and betrayed by your loved ones, by your children, by your spouse, by your parents. You will be hated and betrayed. You think that Mashiach didn't know these things? He knew these things and he told us these things ahead of time. But remember, if they hate you, they hated me first. Isn't that what, the, isn't that what he said? Mm -hmm. And so this is why when we when we see these kinds of things, this is why we see that 
in sharing these things, one has to be, one has to recognize that when you share the faith with somebody, you know, you're doing them an eternal favor, but you're not doing them a favor in the flesh. Because their life isn't going to become this sweet bed of roses where everybody loves Joel Olstein. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Okay. Phoenix, do you want to add something here? But thank you, Raina. I can't hear you yet, Felix. Press your space bar and see if that unmutes you. There you go. Hey, how are you? How are y'all? Yeah, I was, I was having some technical difficulties. It seems to be happening a lot lately with everybody. <laughs> yeah, imagine that. Just saying, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, com coming from the computer science things, you know, side of things, uh, yeah, it's been a little bit odd for myself. So just you guys are dealing with all the same things. So <laughs> just trudge through because we can do it. Okay. But anyways, good morning and Shabbat. Shalom to everybody. Um, first of all, just I would like to also read today's Torah portion. If I oh, can. fantastic. Okay, great. That'd be great. Uh, but the one thing that's it's been on my mind since the new year, well, probably before, since the Gregorian New Year, um, um, that started. And, um, you know, with the the two Jewish um, calendars, you know, the civil and the parshat, it's like, that's very confusing. It always seems to be to me that there's a lot of confusion going on, especially like, you know, with you got the Jewish thing and you have, you know, because a lot of times when I'm looking at it, I'm going, okay. The Jews seem to clear, they seem to, and I'm not being anti-Semitic or nothing, but it just seems to be that they lay claim to everything, but yet there's other tribes that are Hebrews also. They're all Hebrews, right? Well, it's, so it, it's like British Israelism. You know, at one point, British Israelism was preached, which all the tribes, tribes of Israel are in Britain. And that's, that's called British Israelism. And Israel does the same thing. You know, if you say, well, I'm of the tribe of Naphtali, oh, you're Jewish. Uh, no. You know, and I mean, I, I don't want to break the news to anybody, but Abraham wasn't Jewish. Isaac wasn't Jewish. Yaakov wasn't Jewish. And and uh, let's cut to the quick. There was no Jewish religion before the Old Testament closes. The Old Testament closes. I mean, when you deal with the Apocrypha, you deal with books that are written that take you all the way up to Shiite, namely the Maccabees. But when you deal with the 66 book Bible, that ended in around 400 BC. There was no Jewish religion in 400 BC. Okay, I want to make uh, look. This needs to be made clear to these to ignorant Americans, who are some of the most ignorant people on earth, by the way. Yes. I mean, you know, you're talking about people who can't name their own capital, who can't find their own can't find their own state on a map. You know, they don't know what the Fourth of July is. I mean, you know, you've seen the Mark Dice videos. I mean, people are patently ignorant. Yes. And, oh, America was built on Judeo-Christian values. Bull. Bubalum stircus, as they say in the Latin. That's a, an absolute lie. Okay? Yes. And people who misunderstand Romans 11. Oh, you're grafted into the Jewish tree. Bull. The tree had every branch cut off of it. Yes. And the root of faith was the faith that was written in the Old Testament, which had completely terminated 
250 years before the first voice of Judaism was ever spoken. 250 years before. So Judaism was a created religion that came, came about around 165 B.C. The book of Malachi had been written about 417 B.C. So David wasn't Jewish. Solomon wasn't Jewish. Hezekiah wasn't Jewish. None of those people were Jewish. Correct. No okay. J in the alphabet until the 16th century, right? What's that? No J in the alphabet. Yeah, so no J at all. Century? Well, no, actually, the name Jesus did not appear in any written Bible that was accredited until 1789. The Benjamin wow. Blaney, Benjamin Blaney version of the KJV was the first place that the J was used, uh, giving us Jesus. Before that, it was always Jesus. It was e and, and to this day, Jesus, the Orthodox Church, every language spoken in the Orthodox Church, Jesus. J only came about a hundred years after the glorious revolution in England because the Germans had taken over the throne and they spelled Jesus Yezu, J-E-S-U, just like they spell Yavol, J-O-J-A-W-H-W-A-H-L, W-O-H-L, Yavol, but it's it's spelled with a J and spelled, pronounced Yah. So that, that's how the J got it. And so the J is a very downstream and, you know, and then all these people, and I was talking, we were talking about this last night. When you talk about the average Christian, where, is, what is the theology that's in the bone marrow of the average Christian? It's given to them by three sources. One is the Sunday school teacher. The Sunday school teacher who has no accreditation whatsoever, they dump the kids on her and say, you go down there and tell them Bible stories. And she goes down there and tells them Bible stories that she barely knows and has probably not even read the Bible. And she relates stories like Samson and Noah and some of these other things and, and the manger, you know, and the manger story. The second place most Christians get their theology is from memorizing worship songs. You ask a Christian, hey, how was church today? It was fantastic. How was the pastor's sermon? Oh, it was really good. What did he talk about? Uh, what did he talk about? Do you guys remember what the, what the pastor talked about today? Uh, no. Uh, what was that? What he said? Uh, don't remember. But you remember, who is like him? Lion and the lamb seated on the throne. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so yeah. all of a sudden, because you know the song, lion and the lamb you're asking yourself how, how did the mandela effect get in here and say wolf and the lamb because your theology is 100 percent based upon the worship songs you memorized and and who vetted the worship song writer who vetted them to find out if their worship song was scripturally correct who did that no one these guys writing worship songs like, can I get by with this? Can I get by with that? Can I get by with this? Can I get by with that? Unless they're writing worship songs that are explicitly from Scripture and Scripture only, they're making up stuff. And when they make up stuff, the theology is, ah. Uh... Like, do you remember the song Michael W. Smith? 
like a rose trampled on the ground. He took the fall and thought of me most of all. Is it true that Mashiach, by who, from whom all of creation was through, by and for, when he was dying on the cross, thought of Michael W. Smith most of all? Is that true? No, but it sure gives you something to think about when you're talking about yourself. It's about me, myself, and I. It's not about him. It's about me, myself, and I. But people come away. The only theology they have is the worship songs they memorize, the foundation that was given to them by the Sunday school teacher, and then how Hollywood represented the biblical event. Correct. You know how many people's conception of the Ten Commandments is done from Moshe being Charlton Heston? When you say the Ten Commandments, all they, all they see is Moshe standing there with the staff parting the water. Eh? Or how about this? When you talk about eschatology, what's the average Christian's eschatology? Oh, the Left Behind series. Mm -hmm. The Rapture. It's one of two things. It's either the Left Behind series, which is the Rapture, or it's Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Earth. Yes. And when you try to explain them, that's what scripture says. Well, you're in an argument of a lifetime because it's in their bone marrow. Oh, yeah. And they said that we're then they're saying, oh, you're a false prophet then. It's like, no, Sunday is false, false prophets. You know, who's the false prophet? The one worshiping on Sunday or the one worshiping on Shabbat? Which one is it? You know, it's it's wild. It's mind boggling. I've had family members that, you know, they get very, very angry. And it's like, no, I'm telling you guys, look it. And I tell them, listen. Find me where it shows, show me where Christmas is in the Bible. Show well, me where Easter. Jeremiah condemns it. Yeah, it, it is, but it's in a negative connotation, correct? It's not, yeah. not something that, you know, you should be practicing. It's actually saying, don't do this, right? But I'm saying from, I'm talking the actual word. Where is it? You know, where's the actual word of Christmas in there? It's not there. You know, what's, where? where's um, Easter? It's not there. You know, Pastor, in the, this, where's our Easter eggs? Yes. All the Christian cookies are by John Hagee's church in San Antonio. Oh, we put out 10,000 eggs last year. Really? Show me Easter egg. Show me the scripture. Show me in the book of Acts where they had Easter eggs. Show me this. What are you yeah. talking about Easter eggs? And you know how many, you know how many evangelical churches are putting Easter eggs out there? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. But once you know, you know, you know, once you know, you know. And like I, I just actually had a situation with my with my mom, which was um, right before Christmas time. And she asked me, you know, are you going to are you, you know, are you coming out? And I said, no, mom. She was like, OK, you know, and I have a very large family, you know, <laughs> very large. So um, and so it's a very important time of year for them. And I told her, I said, you know what, mom, it comes down to this. I rather offend you and everybody else than to offend my creator, to offend you. I rather do that. That's just the way it is. That's the way it is. And I'm sorry. And she, and it's weird. Normally she would argue the point, you know, but she was like, okay, all right. You know, and that's just where I left it. And I would, you know, and, it was, uh, it's not something like I felt like I'm wearing a medal for it. No, it's just that it wasn't an easy thing to do, you know, because it's, it's because, because you, because we've been, I don't know, we've been brainwashed into thinking that this is what it is. 
but when it's not, and when you know, you know, it's like, no, I can't have this in my house because, you know, I know what that represents. I know what that tree represents. I know what I, you know, I know with all of these things, what they represent. I know what that mistletoe represents. I know what, what it represents and it's offensive. It's offensive to my father, you know, and I'm not going to offend him. I'm sorry. It's just not going to happen. And that's where it's right there. Something, something in response to Christmas though, is, that you can kind of point out to people. You could say, look, I don't know about you, but I like seeing you every day of the year. And I like to be able to come by your house and enjoy your company. And I like to see the pictures of your family on a regular basis. And I like to give gifts on a regular basis. And I like to be a part of that, a part of the fellowship of this family uh, routinely. Why does okay. it have to be focused on one day of the year that's associated with the birth of the sun god? Why yes. does it have to be, why do we have to, everything has got to just come down to this funnel of sun god worship at the winter solstice. Why does it have to do that? Why can't we just be a family who loves one another on a regular basis? And I think it's important at this point, Felix, for you to reach out to your extended family and say, you know, now that the Winter Solstice Festival is over, I'm still here. I still love you. I still want to see pictures of your kids. I still want to find out what's going on in your life. I still want to be a part of that, you know, and and and, and my love for you is not dependent on whether or not Rome says we should have a celebration of the birth of the sun god. Correct. You know, and I think that's that's an important healing tool to use to come back to your family and say, guess what? I'm still going on. Right. And, you know, so it's it's something to think about because otherwise we're going to be we will be left. It's you you know, you you fail to nurture the relationships that are so important to you. Correct, correct. Which I which I I can you know, I, I, I love my family. You know, it's like something they're very important to me, you know. And so, yes, I thank you for that advice. Thank yeah. you for that. Because I, I just noticed like the how, you know, they were, you know, it, though it's been like, I don't know, like, I think this is the fourth, the fourth, fourth or fifth Christmas, I think. Still, it's, it, you know, they keep on pushing, but it's, I'm not pushing back or pushing forward. I'm just, it, it is what it is. And it's just the way it's going to be, you know, and um Thank you for that, because that's going to it's going to be able to for so I could stay connected with them and they see that it's like, oh, it's nothing to do with you or me. It's just, no, I can't do it anymore. I can't do it anymore because it's not the truth. And it's it's false. It's false. And I just can't do it. But we yeah, can still you know, we talked about this last week, too, a little bit of talking about the new moon, you know, and celebrating the new moon. And it is something that I, I think needs to be adopted into people's lives as a new moon recognition. Right. And as part of the rhythm of life, again, you know, and it doesn't make us lunatics. No. Right. It doesn't make us lunatics. It just makes us people who are recognizing what is in the scripture. Right. And, and so, you know, and I think this kind of, it also gives us an opportunity to demonstrate the rhythm uh, to our friends and family because it is so important. And that's why I'm saying when we talk about what about the change? What is the change when you come out of her? Right. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, what is the change when you come out of it? And the change is, of course, Shabbat. That is the fundamental change. And hold on a second. And not only is it not only is it Shabbat, the fundamental change, but also the, the feasts. 
this is another part of the fundamental change and the new moons are part of the change. And guess what else? You know what happens? You stop eating stuff that's not called food. Yeah. I mean, you know that. And they're like, what? You know, and it's like you go into restaurants and you're like, um, you know, like I, I've got these cooks that are just like, oh, everything tastes better with bacon. Just slide some bacon on there, whether he ordered it or not. Yeah. So funny, I started telling the waitresses, look, if you give me that bacon, it's going to kill me. So don't put any bacon on there. I don't want any bacon on there at all. And they finally get the message. Oh, this guy might have an allergy. That's something that a vegan can understand. Correct. Correct. Otherwise, they think, well, bacon's not pork. Right? <laughs> I mean, you know, they, I mean, they just, they, they, they just don't get it. You know? They don't. They don't. They don't. I mean, we do, we do bacon, but it's the beef bacon, you know? Yeah, beef so, bacon. Yeah, yeah. The beef bacon, but they don't, that's not what they sell at Burger King. That's not what they sell, you know? They don't sell that at Carl's Jr. They don't, that just doesn't happen, you know? No, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's the parasite filter. It's the parasite <laughs> filter, right? It's, the, yes, it's the, the filter, the filter that comes in with 165 different parasites. Yes. And I'm not, and I'm not you know, I'm not consuming that, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, like like I used to tell people we were talking about this, it's kind of funny. You know, people go in, oh yeah, I gotta have giant shrimp. Well, giant shrimp that comes from China is raised in human feces. Yeah. And you know, and it's a filter. It's a right. filter. Filter. Oh, that giant shrimp just tastes so good. No, no, it doesn't. Yeah, no. it's, a toilet, it's a toilet cleaner, right? Pretty much that's what it is. <laughs> It's the latrine filter, you know, filter. I mean, what do you want to call it? Right? <laughs> no, no. I'm gonna steer clear of that, right? Yeah, of course. Oh, yes. But but these are the kinds of things, you know, and, and that and, you know, and, and I want to get some opinion on it. Let me ask Chris this. Chris, <laughs> what about what about CT? Wow, thanks, Doc. <laughs> Just thought I'd throw it out there to you. I mean, what do you think about CT? Well, okay, so we're going to put it on the the belt buckle holder. Are we going to put it on? What are we going to put it on? You know, I mean, let's yeah. start off. Yeah. With, you know, are we are, have we got four special corners on the garment so that we can do it properly? Or, um, you know, okay, fair enough. Now you say let's wear CT to show others what we um live by fair enough i mean you know if you want to do that that's fine um I, I mean you know to me it doesn't matter um yeah i don't think it's a mandatory thing i agree with you chris i think that wearing cc like paul barry said to me you know when i get to england he'd, he'd hand me a set of cc and i'd say well, why are you wearing these paul he said because mashiach won't Okay, I mean, it's true. The woman touched his seat seat and was healed. And, you know, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good reason uh, to wear him. But on the other hand, you know, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And he really calls us to, you know, when you look at the whole aspect of the faith, the faith is so simple and so pure. You don't have to yeah. do anything. You just have to live. You just have to live. You know, no tattoo is required. No barbed wire on the leg is required. No cutting your head open. No beating yourself over the back with a chain. None of that stuff is required. None of that. None, 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 none. There's no marking that should be able to pick you out. Oh, gee, you need to curse your nose with a big gold ring in there. 
you know, which is what I told my kids I was going to do if they ever got a piercing. I said, if you guys get any piercings, I'm going to pierce my nose and get a great big brass ring that hangs down over my mouth. I'm going to let all the soup just dry there and get crusty and leave it on there. You know, they got piercings. I never did it. So I'm, I'm kind of regretting that. I could have had that big gold ring. You know? <laughs> great big, you know, bowl, bowl ring. You know, I think. We have Chinese look tassels. Oh yeah, there Chinese, you go. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, we put it on on the end of our lanterns and also on our hats. The ancient hats have zitted on their hats, the corner of their garment, right? The hats. And also on the belt. Chinese style. For thousands of years they've been using zitit. Now this is proof. Now also also, the Indians, the red Indians, they have tassels everywhere. Every garment has lots of tassels. That's the mm-hmm. zizit. It's an inheritance from ancient times, passed yeah. on when yeah, yeah. they migrated. And then uh, they ma- modified it according to their, uh, <laughs> I mean, everybody according doing to, what they did. The the they, mo- they modified it according to Sun Tzu. Or maybe yeah. it was it was Kung Fu Tzu. <laughs> this is well, uh, uh, brother Pigeon, let's start the the Torah readings. Uh, these are sites we got into uh, rabbit holes. Can I sound the shofar and start it first? It's already three three thirty. I mean here. I what you, what are you complaining about, Ezra? It's just getting a little yeah, bit long in the, the night here. Okay, I know. Okay. <laughs> I know, I know. If, if it goes any later, you're going to run out of breath and won't be able to sound the, the shofar. Yes, please sound the shofar. And while you're at it, Ezra, give us one of your yep. beautiful prayers while you're at it, okay? Okay. Okay, all right, okay. brother. Yes, I'll sound it first and pray. <laughs> Papa, you are the maker of the heaven and the earth, and you are, uh, you declared in your word, the earth belongs to you, and the fullness of the earth, and all the people that dwell in it, everything belongs to you by right of creation, and through redemption by the shed blood of Yahusha, we belong to you a second time round. And also now we found out that your name is in all of our DNA. <laughs> oh, we we are owned by you, literally created by you, and uh, and the fractals of every DNA has your yod hey wav head. Father, we say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, awesomely made by you, and we are so thankful that you have redeemed us through the shed blood of Yahusha. And we want to learn from your Torah and to be obedient because you have uh, challenges. If you love me, keep my commandments. Amen. And Father, Dr. Pigeon, restoring the Big Ten and also now talking about restoring the new moons and that we have failed to keep all these 
feast <laughs> feast days and then and then got sidetracked into rabbit holes like Christmas and Easter only. And we Chinese too only observe the, the, the first and the fifteenth and forsaken uh, the other feast and, and, and worship all kinds of idol idols got into idolatry. Much like Josephus said, they only observe two Sabbaths out of the month uh, in a certain in, in this in these Jewish communities, uh, I mean in the past. Father, we say, sorry, sorry, a thousand apologies that we have offended you big time because we have ignored your moedim and we have failed to keep your, your laws and we even failed to uh, take care of the little things because if we fail to observe those little things, we will be counted as the least, the least ins insignificant people, uh, even if we can slip into the kingdom reign of Messiah for a thousand years. Father, we ask of you to grant us the spirit of repentance and proxy on behalf of all the sins of our forefathers that have been committed down the ages uh, among we Chinese people and also uh, uh, the, the races around the world. We pray that you will raise up a remnant who will cry out to you for restoration of all things that have been lost, restoration yeah. of the books that have been lost, restoration yeah. of the names, the sacred names, restoration of the feasts, restoration of, of all the moedim that we have gone wrong. Father, we ask of you to grant us a Roha Kodesh to help us to repent and to really obey you because without obedience, all our sacrifices are nothing to you. Yeah, like filthy rags. But you want obedience rather than sacrifice. And Father, we thank you, thank you for this time of uh, fellowshipping over your Torah. And may we learn from Dr. Pigeon and others and uh, each other that this iron will sharpen iron amongst us as we mitrash together in the in the right way. And and we give you all grateful thanks and praises in the wonderful name of our wonderful Messiah Yahusha. And everybody. Uh, uh, utter, uh, amen. Amen. Uh, Man, and hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Ezra Ho. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Okay. All right. Some quick comments from Brian and Angelo. Make, make them quick so we can get into the Torah study. If no, you can, can, I, that's okay. can I make my comment first? Oh, yeah. I'm sorry, Chris. Yeah, sure. All right. First of all, I want to say thanks to Ezra. I love his reading last week. Um, second of all, I'd just like to ask him maybe... The, Maybe that's uh, maybe that's bad Torah like Moshe gave. I don't know the, the TT, you know. Um, but okay, so 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 my comment was actually with Raina, uh, in line with Raina, what she said. And the point is about Dan. We spoke about well, I spoke about Dan last week um, on Amos eight uh, fourteen, and then uh, Amos nine, where obviously the tabernacle of David is restored with the name. Very important. But um, I did a bit of more research into Dan. And it's interesting because the English language is a man-made language <clears throat> which is designed to put the world under a spell. And that's why you've got spelling as the word for the spelling of words. And we understand that if we know gematria and how the evil forces use gematria to put spells on the world. And they do that every day through the news headlines, etc., etc. I'm not going to get into that. But Dan, have you ever heard this, 
know, I mean, it's always a washed-out guy, and he's probably not all that kosher anyway. Yeah, they bring it, they bring the, in the old that alcoholic. I'm to make here they bring in the old unless like, you keep. Oh, Brett. Yeah. Brett, I'm sorry, Chris. Go ahead. No, no, no. That's fine, Doc. So in uh, today's reading of Isaiah, we see that Ephraim, what are they accused of? Drunkenness, right? So drunkenness is of the order of the day. And what is lost? What is lost is line upon line and precept upon precept. And uh, what happens in that? Because here in verse um, 13 of 28 of Isaiah, it says, But the word of Yahweh was upon them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Well, Good point. that's the prophecy. Sorry, Doc. Good point. That's exactly what Dan was supposed to do. That is the prophecy of Yaakov on Dan in um, Genesis 47, I believe it is, um, that he will be a snare and he will cause people to fall backwards. So what is that thing? It's the lie and the anger. Who hates us? The Catholic Church hates us. Who is lying to us? The Catholic Church is lying to us. And they have influenced the whole world. doesn't matter what you think of the Christian faith around the world has been influenced by these people. And um, we are believing a lie. And, uh, you know, this uh, chapter 2 of Dan, the verse 2, it says, for, for anger is blindness and does not suffer one to see the face of any man with truth. That includes Yahushua. Um, there, there's so much in this, uh, in, in Dan, in this part of Dan, but it says here, uh, I just want to read one more, one or two more verses. Uh, chapter four, verse seven says, moreover, a twofold mischief is wrath with lying and they assist one another in order to disturb the heart. And when the soul is continually disturbed, Yahweh departs from it. And Baal rules over it. And when this is where we see. Is now, wait a minute, Chris. Yes. When the yes. soul is continually disturbed. Yes. The Ruach departs from it. Well, it says Yahweh departs from it. Yahweh departs from rules, it. And Baal rules over it. So, with the disturbance of the spelling that man is casting upon the earth uh obviously through the fallen right this is what is happening to the people of men or the people on earth that they are getting disturbed continually and therefore we have a divorce of yahweh in the soul of man because we are fearful for our lives or for whatever whatever they the new flavor of the month is whether it be pharmacia, whether it be um, provision, whether it be airplanes falling out of the sky or, or school shootings, these are all designed to make man fearful and disturbed so that 
Yah departs from your heart because you lose your faith in him. You're putting your faith back in the world systems, which is exactly what they want, because they're teaching you how to live in the world, to work in this system, and become a little pawn. And, 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 and this is where we get broken out of. When we come out of her, my people, and we understand yod Hey vav Hey, there is a different peace that takes over our heart. And then Yah decides to restore the tabernacle of David in our heart with his name first, because that's what the tabernacle was built for, to house his name. Yeah. And once his name is housed in your heart, you are on solid ground. You cannot be moved. You are not fearful anymore, and you do not conform to this world and when you do not conform to this world, the world will hate you and it will try and destroy you. But be of good courage because Yah is with you and he will never leave you nor forsake you to the consummation of the age. And that is his promise. And I think that's something that we've got to understand that this world is here to disturb us, to bring us off the truth so that they can rule over us. And this is exactly what this Christianity is doing. They're all in the world. They don't know it, but they are not set apart. And unfortunately, they do not understand the precept of Yah's commandments, that he is the word. He's not the New Testament made flesh. He is the word made flesh, and he tabernacled amongst us. Yeah, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Yeah, yeah, great word, Chris. Yeah, that's a great word. And uh, thank you for bringing that. Now, we're going to be discussing, of course, the house of Dan here very quickly in the Torah portion. And that is a great word. And thank you for bringing that out. And we can see now, and I think when you were talking about the great G, are you also saying that the Masonic order is part and parcel of the house of Dan? Yes, 100%, Doc. Because if we, leave, if we read this portion of Isaiah, you will see that those that rule in Jerusalem. Well, who are they that rule in Jerusalem? The Rothschild family and the like. They're all part of the Masonic order of the higher echelons of the Masonic, Masonic order. And these people are ruled by the fallen watchers. These people have intimate relationship with them and know them and know who rules the world. And um, so, yes, it's a big deception. Yeah, that is, that is a huge point, you know. And I got to tell you, Chris, uh, and before we go to Brian and, and Angelo and pick these things up, but when uh, I did a, I did a um, commentary with Scott Bennett last uh, Wednesday, and one of the comments that came in, is this fellow who wrote me, and he wrote me just exactly that. He said, look, People do not understand that behind the ruling class are these fallen watchers, that they're still living, that they're still giving the commands, they're still the ones in control, and they hate humanity with passion because they hate Yah's children. That's who they hate, and they're doing everything they can to kill us, to defile us, to taint us, to destroy us, to demoralize us, anything they can think of. And we fight back with the sevenfold doctrine of this whole creation, holding Yah's menorah in our hands, which the Shemash's Mashiach 
to light the day and to light up the night and to tell people this is the light of the world and we're not going to be listening to these satanic commands. And, you know, they're so obvious now. I mean, they can't they can't talk without death dripping out of their mouth. Well, we want to kill you. We want to kill you. We want to kill you. You know, I mean, it's it's on the, the tip of their tongue. That's all they can say is murder, murder, yeah. murder, murder, murder. So, so they want to enslave you and they want to kill you, preferably enslave you into fearful life so that you never say another word and you just work for them. That's the that's the ultimate goal. And obviously, 600,000 people go missing in America each year. Now, where do they go? You know, these are things that you want us to ask in a country that is so uh, electronically protected and uh, protected. How do so many people go missing? One has to ask these questions. Then you see on uh, New Year's Day, this, uh, this, this Nephilim in, uh, in, in, in Miami. Well, why Miami? Isn't it because everybody in Miami is fearful? Nobody knows Yah because they have Yah has departed from their hearts. Nobody is allowed to pray in the streets. These people, you know, you look at the children of today. Uh, the moral, the morals of the children have completely dissolved because of the system that draws people away from Yah. We see this in the music industry because um, these people make pacts. They have to make pacts. With what? With the cabal that tell them their, uh, their, their mandate. And that is to draw the children away from parenting, respecting the parents, and what's more, uh, obviously, to end their life with any kind of Messiah from the word of God. And, uh, you know, this is the ultimate goal of this whole cabal. And this is why we have things like Epstein and everything else is because this world is being spelled upon to bring this Nephilim uh, control back to man because they hate you and they do. They want to see how they can maybe make it back into heaven. And I think that's why the interface between uh, flesh and machine but that's another story for another day uh, they're not going to do it because Yah says whoever else comes into this kingdom by the door which is inside is a liar and a thief and he will have to do something anyway I'm going to say goodbye and blessings to you and we'll chat during the reading hopefully Okay, thank you, Chris. Blessings to you and to you and Melissa and Bria and the whole family. Give our greetings to uh, you know, to Mike and to Linda and to all to everybody. And just blessings to you. And thank you for being a part of this. And I want to thank Ezra too for being a part of this. I know it's late for you guys. Okay. Uh, uh Brian, have, if, do you and Angela have something quick, I hope, or do you want to wait until after we get into the Torah reading? Uh, I just wanted to make a comment on that uh, when you said Adam, uh um, you shall be blood. I shall and, be blood. Yeah, and he said that a while ago, and what hit me really hard, because this is my thinking, it's been my thinking for a long time, that Adam and Eve were, were flesh and bones, and they didn't have blood before the fall of the garden. 
Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like maybe is that a little prophecy there? He shall yeah, he shall become blood instead yeah. of he shall become blood like you know how would we say it in English? Because you see when Yahusha comes back in in Luke chapter thirty twenty four thirty nine, it talks about Yahusha being uh, you know put your fingers in my flesh and my bones. He doesn't say anything about blood. Remember he was blood out on the on the tree. Yeah, blood and water came out. Yep. When, yep. they, when they pierced him, yeah, yeah, and so there is no blood. That's interesting. No blood in the in the glorified body. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyway, and then I just want to tell uh, or say some comment to Rena real quick that the tree of life is re mentioned again in Revelation twenty two two. I believe we're going. That's what we're going back to. What was in the beginning will be in the end. We're going back to the tree of life, eating from the tree of life. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Yeah, yeah. And I think Raina's point was really well taken that the Aleph Tav is the tree of life and that the Ayan is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we're seeing that tree of the knowledge of good and evil is just in everybody's space right now. And uh, they're just, you know, uh, it's a jam. And so, uh, and in this respect, uh, you know, and and this idea of English being a, a casting of spells, it's a language. All of these things are coming about and the casting of spells, you know, look, if you're watching any of the New York news media, you're being brainwashed. And it's that simple. And I don't know if any of you are watching any of that stuff. If you're watching CNN or Fox or MSNBC or NBC, CBS, ABC, if you're watching any of that, you need to repent. Because you are willingly going after spellcasters, witches, people engaged in incantation and reading omens, who denounce Mashiach daily, who denounce Yah daily, and they're, they're, you're turning on the TV in order to hang out with a group of witches. And that's what you're doing. And you need to repent from doing that, and you need to shut them off and never listen to them again. It is sinful. For you to listen to New York media, it's a sin for you to do that. It, it, the brother brought up one time is one where they call um, when we say, call it spelling. Yeah, or spelling a word that just blew me away when he said it one day. Well, you know when you talk about spelling the word, this is actually a teaching that comes out of the you know the planted oaks in Ireland. They be, they didn't believe in putting things in writing. This is why there is no written record. That comes out of almost 1,500 years of a priestly class, almost 2,000 years of a priestly class which governed the, the children of Zarak. They didn't put anything in writing because they believed that putting things in writing, you know, spelling, would, would cause the thing to die, cause the idea to die. You put it in a grave. When you put it in writing, you put it in a grave, you put it in a tomb. And so this is a very interesting thinking. And, you know, and again, this comes back when you look at the Shiat, the Shiat was very much in this regimen, which is why you can't find the written gospels in the original text, because they weren't given in the original text. They were given as an oral testimony because that was the practice. It was a triadic teaching and it was supposed to be done verbally and was supposed to be given from generation to generation. It even says so in the Torah, teach your children this verbally that it's in the front of their mind and in the front of their fingers to learn this this history verbally. And that's why the New Testament is not in Hebrew. That's why you can't find it, because it wasn't written, because it was never intended to be written. It was intended as an oral transmission 
that it would not die. And it was the Greeks that fixed it. It was the Greeks that fixed it into a writing. They fixed it into a writing. And when you look, when you look, look, the whole of the, the Greek methodology that caused things to turn was when a Ptolemy, who was running the, the Greek empire after Alexander the Great's death, that portion of the empire was called the Ptolemaic Empire. He decided he wanted the ancient scriptures from wherever source they were, he wanted those to be written in Greek. That's the history of the Septuagint, and it took place in the second century BC. He wanted that stuff written in Greek. And as soon as it got written in Greek, a Greek faction called the Maccabees immediately tried to give breath and life to that faith in their version of it, which became the Talmud. They rewrote it in their own likeness, and that became the Talmud, the Gemara, the Mishnah, the writing down of the oral law. That was all done as a result of Ptolemy saying, I want those ancient scriptures written in Greek. Pull them into Greek. You see this? And so what? where were the original documents? And who crafted them? And where were they located when they crafted them? Well, I think they ended up in Alexandria. And then the Romans came in and burned that library three times to make sure the originals could never, ever be found. Angelo, you want to add? Thanks, Brian. Yes, thank you. Shabbat Shalom. I will be very brief in respect turn, to... Turn your camera on. Turn your cam Angelo, turn your camera on. Oh, I had it on. I turned it off. You know, that's me. I'm sorry. <laughs> Technologically challenged, apparently. Um, just, I'll be very, very brief because I want to get to the Torah, certainly. Um, if there's time at the end, I would like to have a request about a specific thing in prayer that has to, in regarding to a circumstance, if that's possible. Um, just as you mentioned about this great Greek Septuagint, perfect example today in the Torah when uh, he's introducing himself in the first person, when you read that in Greek, it's not saying that at all. It's a corruption already. There's so much corruption that it's not the same. It it goes kind of sideways. Yeah, and, you're trying yeah. To, you're trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. Right. And they did. They did not have the words in Greek, and they and not only did they not have the words in Greek, but they wanted to form the ideology and the theology that was found in the Tanakh. They wanted to transform it into comporting with the Greek mythology of Zeus and, and all of these things, and they wanted it all to layer on, and so that they could join their belief and their understanding. You got to remember, Zeus is a fallen watcher. Jupiter is a fallen watcher. These are fallen watchers, right? And that's pretty clear when you see the Temple of Pergamos, but that's who it was. So yeah, that's very that's very important. Now, one thing I want you guys to keep in mind when we read the Torah portion, I want Felix to open us up here in the Torah portion. When we're reading this, remember that Moshe is talking to a son of Esau, who's the Pharaoh. Now, when you understand that the sons of Esau took the throne from Seti I all the way through all the Ramses, those were all sons of Esau. When you understand that, this whole picture is going to come infinitely clearer. Because now you're going to see that these sons of Esau, why did Yah insist upon putting the children of Abraham 
in slavery in Egypt? Well, Moshe is going to tell you. Yah tells him, because Pharaoh does not know my name. Pharaoh did not know his name because Esau did not pass the name on. Esau rejected his birthright. He hated his birthright. And this is why Yah hated Esau. And so Esau now is going to, oh, these are the children of Yaakov. I remember that guy. He's the guy that ripped me off. Put them in slavery. Bind them up. Make them serve us. That's what he did. And when you understand that, when you understand that who Moshe is talking to throughout this whole book is the son of Esau. Okay? This is going to come a lot clearer to us. Okay. Let me let me add this one person here to the waiting room here. I'm going to try to find my mouse. But where are you, mousey bear? There you are. Okay. All right. Felix, if you will, let me share the Torah portion and let's get started here. And where we've left Genesis, we're now entering into Shemot. And Shemot, of course, means what? The names. The names. Okay. All right, go ahead, Felix. Now, these are the names of the children of Yasharel, which came unto Mitzrayim. Every man in his household came with Et Yaakov, Reuven, Shemion, Levi, and Yahuda, Yisachar, Zavulan, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And all the souls that came out of the loins of Yaakov were 70 souls. For Yosef was in Mitzrayim already, and Yosef died, and all his brethren, and all that generation. And the children of Yashrael were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceedingly mighty. And the land was filled with them. Now there rose up a new king over at Mitzrayim, which knew not Yosef. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Yashrael are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply and it come to pass that when there falls out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get them out of the land. Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh's treasure cities of Pithom and Ramasek. And Ramesses. Ram Ram Ramesses. Yeah, Ramses. Oh, Ramses. Ramses. Okay. Yeah, and Ramses. The cities of Ramses, right? And again, yes. remember that Pithom and Ramses, these are all children of Esau. <laughs> and the Pharaoh's treasure cities now, and if and you can find these, what's called the City of the Kings. If mm -hmm. you Google this on Google Earth and you follow down the Nile, go just north of what's called the Aswan Dam, and you'll find the City of the Kings and where they built all these treasure cities to Ramses. Wow. Okay. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Yasharel. And the Mitzrayim made the children of Yasharel to serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field at all their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. 
And the king of Mithraim spoke to the Avri midwives, in which the name of one was Shipra, and the name of the other was Pua. And he said, When ye do the office of a midwife to the Evrith woman, women, and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives fe feared Elohim, and did not as the king of Mitzurim commanded them, but saved the men children alive. And the, chil and the king of Mitzurim called for the midwives and said unto them, Why have ye done this thing, and have saved the men children alive? And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Erif women are not as the Mitzurim women, for they are lively and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. Therefore, Elohim dealt, dwelt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. And it came to pass, because the midwives feared Elohim, that he made them houses. And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born ye shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall save alive. And now here you go. Here's the midwives telling the story. Well, you know, Pharaoh, we were going to kill all the sons. But these Ivory women, they're not like Mitzrayim women who go into labor. And, you know, you've got six hours or eight hours. You know, you're waiting for, you know, 10 centimeters, you know. So we're not there yet. I mean, I'll get there tomorrow morning when you're ready to have the baby. By the time we get there, these Ivory women, have already, their children are already born. So there's nothing we can do about it, right? And because of this, Yah is giving them houses, right? Because they're keeping these boys alive. All right, let's, let's get into chapter two. And there went a man of the house of Levi, and took to be his woman a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw him that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. And when she could no longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes, and daubed it with slime and with pitch, and put the child therein. And she laid it in the reeds by the river's brink. And his sister stood afar off to wit what would be done of him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river, and her maidens walked along by the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to fetch it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the babe wept. And she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Avrim children. Then she said, then said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call to you a nurse of the Areth woman, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the maid, and the maid went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it, and the child grew. And she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moshe. And she said, because I drew him out of the water. Okay, now with that being said, you can see that she was seeking a wet nurse, right? What's called a wet nurse. And the wet nurse turned out to be Moshe's mother. Convenient, eh? And <laughs> all the immunities and so on and so forth that are passed in breastfeeding is going to be coming from his natural mother. And she called his name Moshe because I drew him out of the water. But 
Did he also have an Egyptian name? Answer, he probably did. Okay, go ahead and pick it up, verse 11. Okay, and it came to pass in those days when Moshe was grown, that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens. And he spied a Mitzuri smiting an every, every one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that way. And when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Mitzuri and hid him in the sand. And when he went out on the second day, behold, two men of the Avrim strove together. And he said to him that he that did wrong, wherefore you smite your fellow. And he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Intend you to kill me as you killed the Mitzuri? And Moshe feared and said, surely this thing is known. Boom. It was known. Yes. <laughs> now when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moshe, but Moshe fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew the water and filled the, tr the troughs to water the, their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moshe stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And when they came to Reuel, Re Reuel, their father, he said, How is it that ye are come too soon today? And they said, A Mitzuri delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, and also drew water enough for us, and watered the flock. And he said unto his daughters, And where is he? Why is it that ye have left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. And Moshe was content to dwell with this with the man. And he gave Moshe Sephorah, his daughter, and she bore him a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. Okay, now, Gershem is a very interesting name, okay? And uh, why did he call him Gershem? Okay, hold on just for a second. I got to trick my mouse here where I can figure out how to control it. I can't control my own mouse. That's what your problem is. Dude. You, can't, you can't be an elder if you can't control your own mouse. <laughs> oh no, that's house. Control your own house. Okay. So you have this idea of gear. Gear. Oh, excuse me. Gear. And then Shem. Right? Shem. Okay. So Shem here, this these are actually two words. Shem or shame means what? Name, right? Mm -hmm. Name, Shem, name. What about gear? What's gear mean? Stranger. So do you remember the concubine of Abraham? Everybody tells you, oh, her name is Hagar. You know, the mother of Sammy Hagar. <laughs> you know, well, no, her name was not Hagar. Her name was Hager. Now, when you look at the name Hager, uh, hold on a second. I'm going to try to get this here squared away. Okay. The Ger is stranger. Yeah, it's Ger, the stranger, right? Hager, the stranger. And so here we see Ger Shem. His name was stranger. Because why? He was a stranger in a strange land. You ever read that book? Stranger in a Strange Land. You know, it's it, it's I, I love the phrase. It's a very important phrase. And I think it does give us indication of what's going on here. 
a stranger in a strange land. And this is something very important to remember. That when you talk about Abraham and, and Yitsha and Yaakov and the house of Yasharel, they were all strangers in a strange land. Even when they were in Mitzrayim, even when they went into the Holy Land, into the land of Canaan, they were strangers in a strange land. Okay, go ahead and pick up verse 23. And it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Mitzrayim died, and the children of Yasharel sighed by the reason of the bondage, and they cried, and their cry came up upon Elohim by the reason of the bondage. And Elohim heard their groaning, and Elohim remembered his covenant with Avraham, with Yitzhak, and with Yaakov. And Elohim looked upon the children of Yasharel, and Elohim had respect unto them. Okay, now when we talk about this covenant with Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, in Divrei Hayamim, or in Chronicles, the way it's put is, there was a covenant given to Avraham, which became an oath to Yitzhak, which became a law unto Yaakov, which became an everlasting covenant to the house of Yasharel. And, you know, that's a question for us all. Do we believe it was an everlasting covenant? I think we do. And I think there's been many things that have happened to the house of Yasharel that have placed us all over the world. But nonetheless, what happened? Okay. Uh, let's go ahead and read chapter three. Uh, Felix. Now Moshe kept the flock of Yithro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of Elohim, even to Horeb. And the angel of Yahweh appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the thorn bush. And he looked, and behold, the thorn bush burned with fire, and the thorn bush was not consumed. And Moshe said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the thorn bush is not burnt. And when Yahweh saw that he had turned aside to see, Elohim called unto him out of the midst of the thorn bush and said, Moshe, Moshe. And he said, Here I am I. And he said, Draw not nay hither. Put off your shoes from off your feet, for the place whereon you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the Elohai of your father, the Elohai of Avram, the Elohai of Yitzhak, the Elohai of Yaakov. And Moshe hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon Elohim. Very important phrase. I am, right? Anki, Anki, I am. The Elohai of your father, the Elohai of Abraham, the Elohai of Yitzhak, the Elohai of Yaakov. It's an incredible phrase, very, very powerful, very strong. Okay. And Moshe said, I am surely seen the infliction wait, wait, wait. of my people. I know. And Yahweh said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Mitzrayim, and I have heard their cry by the reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows, and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Mitzrayim and to bring them up out of the land unto a good land and a large unto a land flowing with milk and honey unto the place of the Kenyanim and the Shiraim and the Amorim and the Perizim and the uh, and the Hevaim 
and the Yevusian. Okay, now hold there for just a second. Okay, so we see a couple of things. Remember that when we're talking about when you see I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of Mitzrayim and to bring them up out of the land. This is not a north and south direction. This is an elevation direction. I'm coming down from a high elevation, down to a low elevation, and I'm going to bring them up to a high elevation. Okay? Now, he says what? I'm going to bring them into a good land. And, and what? A good land and a large land. Not a small land. No. Not a strip of land, not some little narrow enclave, a large land, a land that is flowing, flowing with milk and honey. Now, it tells you that the honey, you could say it's metaphorical about camels, but it could. this could also be true about milk and honey, that this is a place of beehives and that it's flowing with milk would indicate that there are lots of range cattle that are available there. Lots of range cattle, right? It's flowing with milk. Now, when you get there, you're going to find out that this place is the place of the Canaanites, mm -hmm. the Hittites, the, not the Hittites, Hittites, but the Hittites, mm -hmm. the Emorim, the Perizim, the Hivim, and the Yevusim. Now, I want to take just one second on the have you seen to point out something when we look at uh hold on I'm really having trouble with my mouse here today but i want to show you this when we look at there we go when we look at the word yerushalayim okay so you have this idea of yod ye ru Uh, like lion, like shalom. Yerushalayim. Okay, now, when you look at this, okay, this tells us, this is like a derivative of shalom, okay, or Salem, shalem, shalom. This part here, yeru. But, I want to show you what's the difference between Raish and Bait? This. Now, if I if if I have a break in my Torah scroll, it, and now so if this is a bait, then this becomes Yebu Shalom or Yevu Shalom. Yes. Consistent with this name right here. Now this these are the people that control this city. Yevu Shalom. They control this fortress. This is a castle. The scripture calls it a castle. They control this for fortress. And we're told that it's Yeru Shalom. But it may have been, and I'm not saying it was, but it may have been Yevu Shalom. The peace of the Yevu Sim. Okay. All right, and I just wanted to show that to you so you can see why sometimes you get scripture that is, well, did that say Yebu Shalom, Yeru Shalom? It depends on whether or not there was a break in that line there. 
Okay. All right. Let's continue with verse 9. And now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Yasharel is come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Mitzrayim oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you unto Pharaoh, that you may bring forth my people, the children of Yasharel, out of Mitzrayim. And Moshe said unto Elohim, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Yasharel out of Mitzrayim? And he said, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be a sign unto you that I have sent you. When you have brought forth the people out of Mitzrayim, ye shall serve Elohim upon this mountain. Ah, okay. So he's on a mountain that is consistent with the Midianites. And remember, the Midianites were descendants of Abraham. Now, it's also worthy of note here, a couple of things. One is we see that, that uh, Moshe himself was born to a Levite father and a Levite mother, which means Aaron was born to a Levite father and a Levite mother. Why is the scripture silent on not telling us who his father was? Why can't, it, why can't it identify his name so we can see the lineage directly to Levi, right? But it's it's silent. It's some, we're not going to give you the name. Now, in addition to that, now we see, we also know, we're going to find out later on, Moshe was already married to a Cushite woman. He had married a woman of Cush earlier because he was a king in Cush before he did all this stuff. And so now he goes out and he's hanging out with the Midianites were really kind of cousins in the line of Abraham, and he marries a Midianite woman. So his children are not going to be Levites. His children are not Levites. Aaron's children were probably Levites because he married, I forget who it was, didn't he marry Miriam? And, and his children were probably Levites. But Moshe's children were not because he had married a Midianite woman. Right? Okay. And he had gone out into the land of Midian and in the land of Midian, he had found a mountain. And in this mountain, he had found a burning bush. And it is on this mountain, whatever mountain this is, that he has been told, bring your people back here. Bring forth your people out of Mitzrayim, and you shall serve Elohim upon this mountain. So it's reasonable to conclude that the mountain that he found is Mount Zion. Not Zion. Okay. Not Moriah, but Mount Zion. Okay, so let's take it up in, chapter, in verse 13. And Moshe said unto Elohim, Behold, when I come unto the children of Yashrael, and shall say unto them, The Elohi of your father has sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What's the first question that comes to mind? What's the first question that comes to mind to the children of Yashrael? Oh, you, you're bringing to us the Elohi of your fathers? So what's his name? Is it Lord? Is it God? Mm -hmm. What's his name? The very first question they're going to say is, what's his name? And what shall I say to them? Okay, go ahead. And what shall I say unto them? And Elohim said unto El Moshe, Ayah, Asher, Ayah. Okay, hold it right there. Here we are. Now, here we have a lot of people, particularly in the black Hebrew Israelite movement, who said, this is his real name, Ahiyah, Asher Ahiyah. It's not Yahweh. This is his real name right here. Okay. 
Now, when you see this in the Hebrew, you have three Alephs in a row. You have Aleph, He, Yod, He. Then you have Aleph, Shin, Resh, and then you have again Aleph, He, Vav, He. Now, what I'm proposing to you guys is this. First of all, these three Alephs are a critical marker. And they're likely prefixes, meaning I shall be. They're prefixes stating I shall be. Then, as is common in Hebrew, you have a second prefix, eh. And the second prefix is the. This word here is a primary root, shar or sar, which means prince. You know the sar shalom, prince of peace? Yes. Sar shalom, that's the same word right here, sar. Okay, so we have, so this is, and then ya. Here is the primary word, as it is here. Yeah. So what's it saying? I shall be the I am. I shall be prince. I shall be the I am. That would be a the most accurate interpretation in English. I shall be the Yah. I shall be prince and I shall be the Yah. Okay? And this is why I wish, you know, I wish people would understand, don't be, don't be myopic. You said my name is Ahayah, Ahayah, or therefore that must be his name. It. This is, you have to be able to read the Hebrew clearly to understand what's being said there. There's double prefixes in front of the Ahayah. And interestingly enough, three Alephs in a row, right? And just mm -hmm. as you have Yahweh, Eloheka, Yahweh, right? Shema Yashaveh, Yahweh, Eloheka, Yahweh, right? Yes. Okay. All right, let's go ahead and pick it up there on uh, right after this. Asher, Ahaya, Asher, Ahaya, and he said? And he said, thus shall you say unto the children of Yasharel, Ahayah has sent me unto you, and the Elohim and Elohim said moreover unto El Moshe, Thus shall you say unto the children of Yasharel, Yahweh Elohai of my fa of your fathers, the Elohai of Avram, the Elohai of Yitzhak, the Elohai of Yaakov, have sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my mention unto all generations. Okay, now here it is. This We started out this poor portion talking about just this, talking about the name and what it is that you would share with other people when you're trying to share coming out of Babylon. And here it is. He tells you right here. 
he said, and, and, and Elohim said, moreover unto El Moshe, thus shall you say to the children of Yasharel, Yahweh Elohai, Yahweh Elohai of your fathers is the Elohai of Abraham, the Elohai of Yitzhak, the Elohai of Yaakov, and he has, Yahweh Elohai has sent me unto you, and this is my name forever. Yahweh. Yeah. You see this? Mm -hmm. And we didn't invent this. We didn't inject this into the text. This is what appears in the Hebrew. Mm. Okay? This is my name forever. And this is my mention unto all generations. When you're going to mention the Elohai of Abraham, when you're going to mention the Elohai of Yaakov, when you're going to mention the Elohai of, of Yitzhak, you're going to mention the name Yahweh. Okay. Sorry, I'm getting kind of, you know, upset. No, it's, oh, it's awesome. <laughs> Go and gather the elders of Yasharel together and say unto them, Yahweh Elohai of your fathers, the Elohai of Avram and of Yitzhak and of Yaakov appeared unto me saying, I have surely visited you and seen that which is done to you in Mitzrayim. And I have said, I will bring you up out of affliction of Mitzrayim unto the land of the Kenyanim and the Chetim and the Amorim and the Prezarim and the Shevaim and the Yesuf and the Yevusim unto a land flowing with milk and honey. And they shall hearken to your voice and you shall come you and the elders of Yasharel unto the king of Mitzarim, and ye shall say unto him, Yahweh Elohai of Avrim has met with us, and now let us go. We beseech you three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh Eloheinu. Yeah, now, so, so here you see, how many times do we see Yahweh in this phrase? Right? Over and over again, you tell the people it's Yahweh Elohai, you tell the Pharaoh it's Yahweh Elohai, and that we want to go and sacrifice to Yahweh, our Elohim, Eloheinu, our Elohim, right? Mm -hmm. And so this becomes very quick. Now, what is Moshe looking to do? Does he want to do an exodus? Does he want to take the people out of here? No, he's got a three-day journey into the wilderness to get to this mountain from Mitzrayim, three-day journey, out of the wilderness to get to this mountain to sacrifice to Yahweh Elohim. Okay, it's a three-day journey. However far that is, that's how far he's going. Three days to get to the mountain where he's going to sacrifice out of Mizraim. All right. Hold on here. Okay. Let's keep going. Okay. And I'm sure that the king of Mizraim will not let you go. No. Not by a mighty hand. And I will stretch out my hand and smite Mitzrayim with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst thereof. And after that, he will let you go. And I will go and I will give this people favor in the sight of Mitzrayim. It shall come to pass that when ye go, you shall not go empty, but every woman shall borrow of her neighbor and of her that sojourns in her house jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And ye shall put them upon your sons and upon your daughters, and ye shall spoil the Mitzrayim. Okay, now it's interesting here that 
silver, and gold. Nothing's talked about with precious stones here. No precious stones are discussed. Silver and gold. Okay. All right. So, uh, Phil, uh, Phil, did you want to take up reading from here? Yeah, I was just going to volunteer if you needed somebody. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to thank you, Felix, for this reading. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Let's have Phil pick it up in chapter four. Uh, go ahead, Phil. Let's take it from here. And Moshe answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice, for they will say, Yahweh has not appeared unto you. And Yahweh said unto him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A rod. And he said, Cast it on the ground. And he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moshe fled from before it. And Yahweh said unto Moshe, Put forth your hand and take it by the tail. And he put forth his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. That they may believe that Yahweh, Elohai of their fathers, the Elohai of Abraham, the Elohai of Yitzhak, and the Elohai of Yaakov has appeared unto you. Okay, so the symbol of Moshe's power is going to be a rod that turns into a serpent. Right? That's pretty clear here. Okay, keep going. And Yahweh said furthermore unto him, Put now your hand into your bosom. And he put his hand into his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous as snow. And he said, Put your hand into your bosom again. And he put his hand into his bosom again and plucked it out of his bosom. And behold, it was turned again as the other flesh, as his other flesh. And it shall come to pass, if they will not believe you, neither hearken to the voice of the first sign, if they will believe the voice of the latter sign. And it shall come to pass, if they will not believe also these two signs, neither hearken unto your voice, that you shall take of the water of the river, and pour it upon the dry land. And the water which you take out of the river shall become blood upon the dry land. Okay, so three signs. And we can't really talk about a lot of them now in, in as much detail as we want. But we know that the serpent is going to become what's called the Nahushtan. That is to say, the serpent is going to be placed on the pole, which to this day is the Asclepius, the sign of the medical profession. The serpent would be put on the pole, they would look on the serpent, and then they would be healed. And this became the sign of the medical profession, became an idol, and Hezekiah tore down the Nakushtan, the serpent on the pole of Moshe, because really it was Moshe asserting his power and not necessarily the power of Yah. But yet it is written in the Gospels that as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man would be lifted up. That's a very important part. Now, the conversion of water into blood is also an important part. And we see that we have kind of a symbol of this with Mashiach's very first miracle, turning the water into wine in the pots. This was kind of the same symbol that Moshe could use taking water out of the river and pouring it on the dry land, and it became blood. So you have a conversion of water into something else. And of course, Mashiach did the same thing, taking the water and turning it into a blood-red wine. It was kind of very much the same symbol, symbol that we see going on here. And then finally, the last one is the leprosy. And if you recall, the idea of this idea that his hand was leprous and then he's miraculously healed this was also a sign that we see in Mashiach 
miraculously healing the lepers. You might recall this. This is one of his miracles. He miraculously healed the lepers. So you have three signs here that say this is the signs of Moshe's authority. And those three signs are then reiterated in the voice of Mashiach, in the life of Mashiach. Now, when you look at that, what does it say? It says here very clearly that these three signs are present because if they will not believe you and not neither hearken to the voice of the first sign, if they will not believe you, then do these signs. And Mashiach, these signs right off the bat. And, these, and, and there were those that believed and those didn't. But he had Mashiach in his life had the three signs of Moshe's authority. Okay. Let's pick it up at verse 10. And Moshe said unto Eliyahu, O Adonai, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore, nor since you have spoken unto your servant, but I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. And Yahweh said unto him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the dumb or deaf or the seeing or the blind? Have not I, Yahweh? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. And he said, Oh, Adonai, send, I pray you, by the hand of him whom you will send. And the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Moshe. And he said, Is not Aaron the Levi your brother? Or Levi, I should say, your brother. I know that he can speak well. And also, behold, he comes forth to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. And you shall speak unto him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth. And I will teach you at what you shall do. And he shall be your spokesman unto the people. And he shall be, even he shall be to you instead of a mouth. And you shall be to him instead of Elohim. And when you shall take his rod in your hand, wherewith you shall do signs. And Moshe went and returned to Yithro, his father-in-law, and said unto him, Let me go, I pray you, and return unto my brethren, which were in Mitzrayim, and see whether they be yet alive. And Yithro said to Moshe, Go in peace. And Yahweh said unto Moshe in Midian, Go, return into Mitzrayim, for all the men are dead which sought your life. And Moshe took his woman and his sons and set them upon an ass, and he returned to the land of Mitzrayim. And Moshe took the rod of Elohim in his hand. And Yahweh said unto Moshe, When you go to return into Mitzrayim, see that you do all these wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put into your hand. But I will harden his heart, and he shall not let the people go. And you shall say unto Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, Yasharel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto you, let my son go, that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay your son, even your firstborn. Okay, so here you go. You see the praise here very clearly in Exodus. Yasharel is my son, even my firstborn. Now, Jubilees corrects this and gives us a slightly better rendition of this. The seed of Yaakov is my firstborn son. The seed of Yaakov. This is speaking about a DNA, right? This is a DNA. And why isn't Abraham my firstborn son? 
Why is it Yitzhak, my firstborn son? Why is it Yasharel, my firstborn son? Right? Well, there's a reason because you're talking about the whole of the house of Yasharel is my firstborn son. Let my son go, or I will slay your son, even firstborn. So Pharaoh should have picked up on this right off the bat because he's telling him, get it in here, or work, I'm going to slay your firstborn son. And you have to remember, again, you're talking to, Yah is talking to the children of Esau. The children of Esau who are sitting on the throne in Egypt at this point. Okay, let's pick it up at 24. And it came to pass by the way in the inn that Yahweh met him and sought to kill him. Then Sipporah took out a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at his feet and said, surely a bloody man you are to me. So he let him go, and she said, a bloody man you are because of the circumcision. Now, this is very interesting because this is the one point. I mean, when you read of the circumcision of Abraham, it doesn't really mean to cut the flesh. Uh, it, it, there's not really a cutting associated with it. Here, you're talking about a cutting. There was a cutting, and this is bloody. There, this was, a, a, in fact, a circumcision. Uh, of the of of the flesh, but when you talk about with with Abraham, this idea of the circumcision was really an idea of the discipline of the flesh. It's the idea of disciplining the flesh. It's the idea that there is a restriction on male genitalia. Okay, that's the whole point of the circumcision, that there is a discipline on male genitalia. It's like no, you just can't go out there and do what you want to do with everything that's moving, there's going to be specific things that are going to be allowed and specific things that are disallowed. And this is really the circumcision. Now, does that mean that there wasn't an actual physical circumcision? It appears to be the case that there was. But even in Deuteronomy, the first time you find the circumcision discussed, it's the circumcision of the heart. But here we have a very difficult passage that Yah, who called Moshe out of nowhere and said, hey, Moshe, get up here and I'm going to lead you to Egypt and I'm going to give you this stick that's going to become a serpent and you're going to go to Pharaoh and you're going to tell him, let my people go and you're going to lead the people up to this mountain and you're actually going to do this whole thing. Now, it's all of a sudden, Yah's going to show up there and kill him because the son isn't circumcised, right? Well, okay, it's an interesting passage that shows up out of nowhere and appears to be completely inconsistent with everything else we've just read. So I'm going to leave it at that. Let's pick it up at verse 27. And Yahweh said to El Elron, go into the wilderness to meet Moshe. And he went and met him in the Mount of Elohim and kissed him. And Moshe told Aaron et all the words of Yahweh who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. And Moshe and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Yasharel. And Aaron spoke it all the words which Yahweh had spoken unto Moshe, and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that Yahweh had visited the children of Yasharel, and that he had looked upon their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. Okay, keep going. And afterward, Moshe and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh Elohai of Yasharel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, 
Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice to let Yasharel go? I know not Yahweh, neither will I let Yasharel go. Well, and they so said, The Pharaoh is admitting that he's completely compromised into Egyptian theology and has no knowledge whatsoever of Yahweh. He knows Thoth, he knows Ra, he knows Horus, he knows Isis, he knows Seth, he knows all of these things, but he does not know Yahweh, even though he is a child of Esau. Okay, keep going. Three, and they said, the Elohai of the Ivrim has met with us. Let us go, we pray you, three days journey into the desert and sacrifice unto Yahweh Elohenu lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. And the king of Mitzrayim said unto them, Wherefore do ye, Moshe and Aaron, let the people go from their works? Get you unto your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land now are many. Can ye make them rest from their burdens? And Pharaoh commanded the same day the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, Ye shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as heretofore. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, and the tally of the bricks, which they did make heretofore, ye shall lay upon them, ye shall not diminish aught thereof, for they be idle. Therefore they cry, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our Elohim. Let there be more work be laid upon the men, that they may labor therein, but let them not regard vain words. Yeah, so let's and punish them. Let's punish them. And uh, you know, add up more work and stop giving them straw. Make them go get their own straw. Let's just make let's make the burden more difficult. That'll teach them. Now, this is of course ignorance of, by somebody who doesn't know anything about economics. You think that you're going to you just increase the workload? This is what Fidel Castro did. He decided, look, we got two bumper crops of of uh, sugar here, sugar cane. What happens if we plant three crops? Let's do that. Then we can get sugar cane all year long. When he planted the third crop, he completely exhausted the soil and killed it all because he was ignorant. You just can't keep loading on. The same thing Rehoboam did, the son of Shalomah. Well, let's just increase their taxes. Next thing you know, he had a civil war. And it's the same thing here. It's the same thing that's going to happen to the ignorant Pharaoh. All right, pick her up at verse 10. And the taskmasters of the people went out and their officers, and they spoke to the people saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go ye, get your straw where you can find it. Yet not aught of your work shall be diminished. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Mitzrayim to gather stubble instead of straw. And the taskmasters hasted them, saying, Fulfill your works, your daily tasks, as when there was straw. And the officers of the children of Yasharel, which Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and demanded. Wherefore, have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and today as heretofore? Then the officers of the children of Yasharel came and cried unto Pharaoh, saying, Wherefore deal you thus with your servants? There is no straw given unto your servants. And they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, Ye are idle, ye are idle, therefore you say, Let us go and do sacrifice to Yahweh. Go therefore now and work, for there shall no straw be given you, yet you shall deliver the tally of bricks. And the officers of the children of Yasharel did see that they were in an evil case. After it was said, ye shall not minish aught from your bricks of your daily tasks. 
And they met Moshe and Aaron, who stood in the way, and they came forth from Pharaoh. And they said unto them, Yahweh, look upon you and judge, because ye have made our savor to be abhorred in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of his servants to put a sword in their hands to slay us. And Moshe returned unto El Yahweh and said, Adonai, wherefore have you so evil entreated this people? Why is it that you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. Good question. And last verse. Then Yahweh said unto Moshe, Now shall you see what I do to Pharaoh? For with a strong hand shall he let them go. With a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Phil. I appreciate that reading. Excellent work. And uh, we're going to stop for a second. And I just want to say here, when we look at this, we begin to see the shape of all of this. And we're beginning to see the prophecies now and the whole shape of this exodus that is about to appear. And we can see this commissioning of Moshe. And we can see that Moshe is commissioned in a situation where he was married to a Cushite woman. He murders a guy. He leaves Mitzrayim. He goes out to Midian and he marries another woman without, without taking care of his Cushite wife in any respect. He comes back to Mitzrayim. And there's this bit of the circumcision of his son. And I think that writing in that paragraph was something to illustrate that Yah had corrected, hey, you forgot something, Moshe. You can't move ahead unless your son is circumcised. And it's placed in the writing like Yahweh was going to kill him unless he circumcised his son. And this is a, in order to give a strong argument as to why his wife had to do the circumcision, I think. I don't have a real handle on that particular section of the passage. It strikes me as a little bit weird. But we're going to see in the, as we get into the next Torah portion that Aharon has his own rod. And the difference between Aaron's rod and Moshe's rod is Moshe's rod is going to turn into a serpent. Aaron's rod is going to turn into a dragon. And that's what's, again, that's what's actually written in the Hebrew. Tanin, as compared to Nachash, Nakash serpent, Tanin dragon. And so, and we can see again that Pharaoh is hard hearted. And we can also see that the intent of Moshe is not to lead an exodus. His intent is to lead people three days out into the desert to sacrifice. That's his intent. We want to go three days out of here and sacrifice. Now, eventually, he's going to tell Pharaoh why he wants the three days out, because they're going to sacrifice animals. And that was anathema to the Egyptians. You can't sacrifice an animal. We worship animals. You can't go out into the wilderness and sacrifice animals. Well, what turns what was going to be a three-day journey to go out and do a single sacrifice, namely the Pesach, is going to become a 40-year journey. And Moshe is going to die along the way in that 40-year journey. So we'll see that coming into this. All right. Now, if you don't mind, I do want to read, I want to read the uh, the half the Ra, okay? So I'm going to pick that up, and then we'll come back to uh, some comments here. But let me read the half the Ra for us. Okay. So this is out of uh, Yeshayu, or Isaiah 27, 6 through 28, 13, and then another verse from 29, 
uh, verse 22 and 23. He shall cause them that come of Yaakov to take root. Yasharel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Has he smitten him as he smote those that smote him? Or is he slain according to the slaughter of them that are slain by him? In measure, when it shoots forth, he will debate with it. He stays his rough wind in the day of the east wind. By this, therefore, shall the iniquity of Yaakov be purged. And this is all the fruit to take away his sin when he makes all the stones of the altar as chalk stones that are beaten in sunder. The Asherah poles and images shall not stand up, yet the defensed city shall be desolate and the inhabitation forsaken and left like a wilderness. There shall the calf feed and there shall he lie down and consume the branches thereof. The defensed city, this is the Jebusite fortress called Jerusalem that David would take, the defensed city, it shall become desolate and the habitation forsaken, left like a wilderness. When the boughs thereof are withered, they shall be broken off. This is again a prophecy. The boughs being withered is what? This is the house of Yasharel and the house of Judah, the two branches that are on the tree. These branches shall be broken off. The women shall come and set them on fire, for it is a people of no understanding. Therefore, he that made them will not have mercy on them, and he that formed them will show them no favor. And it shall come to pass in that day that Yahweh shall beat off from the channel of the river unto the stream of Mitzrayim, and ye shall be gathered one by one, ye children of Yasharov. And it shall come to pass in that day that the great shofar shall be blown. And they shall come, which were ready to perish in the land of Ashur, and the outcasts in the lands of Mitzrayim, and shall worship Yahweh in the holy mount of Yerushalayim, which the holy mount of Yerushalayim is Mount Zion. Chapter 28. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which are on the head of the fat valleys of them that are overcome with wine, Behold, Adonai has a mighty and strong one, which as a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, as a flood of mighty waters overflowing, shall cast down to the earth with the hand. The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, shall be trodden underfoot. This is a prophecy concerning the house of Ephraim, which many people believe is in fact the United Kingdom. And the glorious beauty which is on the head of the fat valley shall be a fading flower and as hasty fruit before the summer, which when he looks upon it, while it is yet in his hand, he eats it up. Why? Because it's right. And if you don't eat it today, it's going to be rotten tomorrow. In that day shall Yahweh save Od be for a crown of glory and for a diadem of beauty unto the remnant of his people. In that day, the day that the United Kingdom is cast down to the earth the day that a tempest of hail and a destroying storm as a flood of mighty waters overflowing cast Ephraim down to the earth in that day Yahweh Sebaot shall be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and for a ruach of judgment him to him that sits in judgment and for strength to them that turn the battle to the gate but they also have erred with wine and through strong drink are out of the way. 
priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink. They are swallowed up of wine. They are out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filthiness, so there is no place clean. Whom shall he teach knowledge, and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. Very incredible statement that's found in that particular prophecy. For with foreign lips and another tongue will he speak to this people, to whom he said, this is the rest wherewith ye may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing that they would not hear. But the word of Yahweh was unto them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. And finally, the last verse, Therefore, thus says Yahweh, who redeemed Abraham, concerning the house of Yaakov, Yaakov shall, now, shall not now be ashamed, neither shall his face now wax pale. But when he sees his children, work of my hands in the midst of him, they shall sanctify my name and sanctify the Holy One of Yaakov and shall fear Elohai of Yasharel. Okay. Okay, so uh, let me ask Dave Barrow. Dave, did you want to uh, come in and, and speak something here today? Yeah, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat this shalom. Uh, this uh, day of judgment to the world, or it was establishing a remnant that's going to uh, proclaim it. I look at uh, two places, if you, if I if I may take the liberty. In uh, uh, Corinthians, uh, I think it's chapter six. Uh, it's talking about uh, the judgment. Based, you know, you not that you're going to judge the world. This is now. Wait a second. Let's say there, I'm going to read a little bit of. Dare any of you have a matter against another and go to law before the before the unjust and not before the code of shame? Do you not know that the code of shame shall judge the world? If the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know you not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed of the called out assembly. And it goes into, I speak to your shame. Well, let me point out uh, out of uh, Yeshiyahu 58, where it uh, really alludes to the day of judgment, the last trump, uh, Yom Kippurim, when he talks about uh, I'm not, I'm going to paraphrase it because I can pull it up and read it. It may really be, it may be too time consuming. But it says, "Is this the acceptable fast unto, unto to me to me to have your uh, your voice heard? To bow your head down as a bulrush, to throw down in sackcloth and ashes? 
And then he goes in this, this is the acceptable fast. This is the acceptable thing that's going to cause what? The power to come. This is the uh, Ruach HaYahua. Not by might, but not by power, but by your Ruach. This is the acceptable fast. Talks about dealing your bread to the hungry. What does that mean? Talking about not putting forth the finger in vanity. What does that mean? That means he's talking about what has to happen for that to manifest. And then he talks about uh, the things that are acceptable, uh, acceptable things to put away. This is a Yom Kippur kind of thing. This is a day of judgment kind of thing. In Yeshua 58. This is the acceptable things to put away from you. To have this power manifest. To not speak your words, but to speak my words. To fast, in other words, put your words away. To not put your finger forth in vanity. This is a, a, a big change that has to happen. This is a, a Yom Kippur last Trump event that happens to the remnant that brings the Kodashim to the anointing that moves the power and establishes the rain on the rest. Abayua, uh, let me submit to that authority as your Kodashim in Yahusha's name. Amen, amen. Thank you for your opportunity to speak. Thank you, David. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks for bringing that up. Appreciate it. Okay, Hugh McCommon. Go ahead, Hugh. You got, it right. you got it right the first time I talked to you, but this time it's Hugh McCammon. Hugh McCammon. 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 It's, it's an old old Scottish name. Mac, Mac means son of. O-N-D means son of. But we never could figure out what the cam part is, so my uncle always figured it's the cam is the part of the engine that gets everything turning, so we're instigators. <laughs> so, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Okay. So, anyway, the question I was having was, is uh, I've heard the name uh, sauce. There was a group of people that were brought up. Do they have any relationship to Esau? Well, here's the thing. When you're talking about the, the Hyksos people, this there's a very good chance that that is, in fact, the House of Esau. And, you know, again, when you go back and you start looking, when you start looking at this history and you start going through these names, there are a lot of names out there that are just like the names you're not reading in Scripture. Right? Well, where'd that name come from? Where'd this name come from? And... So we have different languages that are discussing the same basic facts, but you've got a bunch of different names being used. And then to make matters even more confusing, you have the idea that the people who took the position of Pharaoh took a different name, just as Jorge Bagolia becomes Pope Francis. Uh, we have the same kind of thing going on in Egypt. The birth name is not the name they take when they become the ruler. They take on an Egyptian. And you can see this, we saw this with Joseph, that Joseph was given an Egyptian name, right? So his name would have been Yosef, Ben Yaakov. Uh, and that isn't the name that he was given by Pharaoh. He was given a completely different name. 
And I, I expect that when you get into the languages of the other tribes that are in the region, if you ask them the name, you're going to get a different language telling you what the name was. Now, what language was the house of Esau speaking? That's a good question because Esau despised his birthright and he married Canaanite women and he married an Ishmaelite woman and he married uh, some other woman. And so he had all of these, he had four different wives and the four different wives were from four different tribes. And what language did they impart to their children? This is a question. So what language were they speaking and how did they identify themselves? Now, one thing we know for sure that the identification of people is like you ask yourself, why didn't you go by this? For instance, Abraham, he called himself Hebrew. Why? Well, he was going after his great-grandfather, whose name was Abru. So his great-grandfather's name was Abru, therefore the, his tribe was Abru. And it's the same thing you see with, for instance, um, the children of Yosef. Why don't they call themselves Yosefites? Instead, they're Ephraim, they're Manasseh. They don't call themselves after Joseph. And the house of Joseph, that were the children that were born after Joseph, would be called after this King Omri, King Omri, right? And that scripture tells us that Ephraim and Manasseh are going to call themselves after the name Isaac. So they would become known as Isaac's sons, which would eventually just be not Isaac's sons, but just Saxons. And these were the children of that will call them the, under the name of Isaac, but they were actually Ephraim. And so people would take different names to describe their tribes. And they are not the names that you would expect them to take. For instance, why didn't the Perishim, why did they call themselves after Peretz and not after Judah? Why didn't they call themselves the Yahudim? Well, they called themselves the Peretzim because we're the children of Peretz. They wanted to specify, they wanted to be very particular who they were. And so when you talk about the, the Hyksos people, they don't, you know, history does not record who they were. Who's this tribe? Did they appear out of the Hittites? Did they appear out of the land of Canaan? Did they come out of the land of Cush? Did they come out of the land of Put? Where did these people come from? They're not mentioned in the book of Jasher as any of the tribes of Yafet. Who's this tribe? Well, it's obvious they're appearing under another name. They're appearing under another name. And that's why you can't identify who they are. Because they're a tribe that has been dis that has been disguised in the history using an Egyptian phrase to describe them, rather than describing them by how they called themselves. Now, how the house of Esau called themselves, I don't know. The it's very interesting to me, however, when you look at chapter thirty-six in Genesis, you have this beginning in verse fifteen. You have this ominous roster of Duke this, Duke that, Duke the other guy. You know, here's this big list of royalty in the house of Esau from all four wives. Why do we get this list? Why do we get this huge list? Because they were the royalty that would take the whole of the house of Pharaoh. And so that becomes a very interesting equation when you realize that Esau overcame the, the, the kingdom of Egypt. The kingdom that was built by Joseph, by the way. Joseph built that kingdom exploiting all of the grain and so forth. And then this is going to be taken over by this group of people who they, all of a sudden, they're the pharaohs now, and they're making the rules. Well, this house of Esau becomes very interesting because this house of Esau is ultimately going to push back against 
the Etruscan people. And you know, you have this mythology in, and it's myth in Rome about Romulus and Remus being born of the wolf, you know, and nurtured of the wolf, right? Are you familiar with the story at all? More likely they were nurtured by a hyena and more likely you're talking about sons of Esau who would come and push back against the Kittim, which scripture calls the Kittim, but the Kittim were actually what we call in the modern world Etruscans. And the Etruscan people lost the control of the Italian peninsula and it was taken over by the Egyptians. And you can tell that because as soon as you get to the Vatican, there's a big fat Egyptian obelisk sitting right there. And the Western church puts the IHS on top of everything. Isis, Horus, Seth, on top of everything, because it it symbolizes the fact that Egypt reached in and took control. Now, the Jewish world, they accepted very readily that Esau overcame Rome. It's from the book of Obadiah, that Esau overcame Rome, that Edom overcame Rome. And remember that the scripture is flat-footed in saying Esau is Edom. It says it flat-footed, Esau is Edom. And Edom overcame Rome. Obadiah substantiates this. So here you have Esau controlling Rome, and Esau is who's sitting in the Vatican, and Esau is are the 13 families, and Esau were the ones that burned down all of history and rewrote it in Latin. They burned it all down and rewrote it in Latin. That's what all the monasteries were about. Anything you find that was in, in, in a Greek historical document or a Hebrew historical document or any other historical document by anybody who wrote anything, burn it. And we'll rewrite it in Latin to comport to our understanding of the world. And that's what they've done. And that's why if you go to the British National Museum or the British Library and you say, give me the document from the 8th century or from the 5th century or from the 9th century or from the 13th century or from the 15th century, it comes back in Latin. It comes back in Latin. The very first text that they have of the New Testament in, in Britain is the Book of Kells. And it was written on the island of Iona around the seventh century. And it is in Latin. So, I mean, this gives you a very clear indication of what has happened. So you can see the forest for the trees in the history by realizing that Rome killed everything else and rewrote it in Latin. Now, some of the stuff they weren't able to kill, and that is the oral tradition. And so even that, you know, anything that you learned about the priests of Zarak is told to you by Rome. And, you know, there is no written record of the priesthood of Zarak in the Gaelic, in the Gaelic areas. There is no written record. So what are you talking about? Oh, this is what they used to do. They did this. They did that. Like one of the things that Julius Caesar said, Julius Caesar, Rome, like Rome never burned anybody at the stake, right? 400 million people they burned at the stake, and most of the time for keeping the Sabbath. Oh, those, those priests were engaged in human sacrifice. Based upon what, Julius? Did you go there? No, he just made it up at a whole cloth. He never even went there. He never even met any of them, and he just claimed they were engaged in human sacrifice. And then from that, you get all these people that are adrift in some sea of witchcraft over there in the United Kingdom, inventing the druids who are running around tree hugging and wearing little you know wearing little wreaths around their head you know talking about this that and the other thing that's all made up mythology it's all new age garbage it was all created out of whole cloth following the knights templar it's all a bunch of bull it's a bunch of bullum stirkers 
They don't know what they're talking about. And, you know, the hard evidence, like, for instance, when you talk about human sacrifice as practiced by the Druids, like Julius Caesar claimed, do you know that there is no word in the Gaelic language for sacrifice and there is no word in the Gaelic language for human sacrifice? There's no word. It doesn't exist in the language. That's pretty hard evidence that it was never practiced. But Julius Caesar made it up and said, oh, yeah, they used to burn them up in the burning man ceremony. So these people who think they're following Druidic practices have the burning man ceremony in Las Vegas, which they got bogged down in the mud this year. That was That was really good. The, they also got stopped by the uh, world uh, the, the climate change people. They got blocked out. You've seen the videos where the, the yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it was a laugh. I mean, it was a, a great deal of fun for me. I was like, oh, you went to Burning Man. You can't get out. So sorry to hear that. You know, so sorry you got trapped by the weather. You guys never thought it would ever happen. Guess what? It's a changing world. You know, it's a it's a volatile place. There's no place in in the wilderness that's not dangerous. And just because every time you went there, it seemed normal to me. It wasn't this time, was it? And you weren't prepared, you know, and, you know, so, and it's like climate change. I made this statement the other day with uh, Scott Bennett. I said, I'm not listening to any government talk about climate change. Not, don't come to me and say, we need to increase your taxes for climate change. You need to do this. You need to do that. You need to stop driving gas cars. You need to switch over to this. You need to get rid of your cows because of climate change. I'm not listening to one word you say, not anything that comes out of your mouth. Until you stop the chemtrails and you shut down the heart. When those two things have happened, you can talk to me about climate change. When you stop messing with weather control, then we can talk about climate change. But while you're doing that stuff, there's nothing to talk about. Don't tell me my cow's flatulence is doing more than you're dumping barium over the city of Seattle all night long. Sorry, they don't equate. You're the problem, not me. Stop doing that stuff. Then we'll start talking about whether or not there's climate change going on. Yes. Right? right? Oh, yes, sir. You're right about that. So anyway, I mean, you know, I, I got to tell you, man, the world absolutely amazed. I just have to tell you, you know, it just amazed. I look out of the world, it's like, really? You know, when you hear when you hear Gates talking about, you know, we just need to reduce the population through vaccines. Uh don't you think that's kind of obvious, Bill, that you're not saving lives with that jab? Don't you think that you made yourself kind of obvious? Oh, no, not me. No, the world can't understand English. I'm just sitting here with a little smile on my face and a needle in my head. <laughs> you know, you know, I mean, it's amazing. Anyway, Hugh, thanks much. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Chris? Yeah, Doc, I just wanted to, um, to, to say, yeah, there the, the are three signs that Moshe had or given by Yah or, or told to, to, to do. One was the serpent. The second was his hand that turns leprous. And the third, the blood upon the dry land. And to me, well, actually, Melissa said this morning when we were reading this to her, it was like uh, the story uh, of the Messiah, because you have the the serpent that appears in Genesis one or two, three, um, 
that uh, that deceives and then by the deception and the fall comes in uh, disease uh, i.e leprosy and then you have the blood of Mashiach so it's like almost a uh, message there of the, of the Mashiach right in, in, in those three signs to Pharaoh well it was actually to the children of Yasharel and, and, and uh, you know I don't know if you'll agree with me because in verse 31, and that's before he goes to Pharaoh, he says, And the people believed when they had heard that Yahweh had visited the children of Yashorel, and he had looked upon their affliction. So, you know, they first went to the children of Yashorel to tell them, because, I mean, they were 480 years or whatever it was in, 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 uh, in the wilderness. And a lot of them had forgotten who Yahweh was. Uh, you know, if, you, mm -hmm. if you're living under all... Sorry, uh, if you're living under under that oppression, it's exactly what's happening now. The oppression of the of the hierarchy. Then you're just living for salvation. You're living for day to day needs and to meet day to day things. You you don't have time to talk to your prodigy to tell them about who who uh, who you must obey. Uh, you know, you, you they, they you take they take that away from you, and that's exactly what this world is trying to do to us right now. So um, yeah, I think we're in a in a spiral of the same sort um, right now, and under the same leadership. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And under the same leadership, and you know, I'll tell you. I mean, I think we can see it here pretty clearly now. When we look out, we we can see that. It is as you had proposed earlier. There are fallen watchers, devils, and demons that are governing the world. They're giving commands. The commands are coming through the synagogue of Satan. The synagogue of Satan is going out and trapping the leaders of the world in honeypots and then blackmailing them. And as a result, the synagogue of Satan can move against human humankind with massive crimes against humanity that are unparalleled. And nobody can say a thing because all the leaders have been trapped on some island, some on fantasy island, you know. And, yeah. you know, I, mean, I got to tell you, that list was absolutely, when I read the list, you know, out of the court documents, that included George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush and Al Gore yeah. and Alan Dershowitz and, uh, you know, some surprising names there. Quite surprising. And, what, and, and what about Jorge Golio? Yeah, well, there's two names they're trying to keep secret. One of them, I think, is is King Charles, and the other is Pope. Yeah. Oh, and they're they're doing everything they can to try to hold these secret. But there's already massive discussion going on in the UK about Charles abdicating. And you know, you have this in the UK. I don't know if you guys know this, but there is a personality in the UK that became infamous, and his name was Jimmy Saville. And Jimmy Saville was like the Dick Clark of Britain. And he was just an extraordinary child rapist. I mean, just extraordinary. And his favorite thing to do was to go to the, the hospitals of disabled children. These were girls that had IQs less than 60 and so on. And he would rape these girls in hospital after hospital. And it went on. I mean, there were hundreds of victims, and then they tried to celebrate him as this great hero of Britain, 
they had this huge, huge headstone out of gold and black marble and on and on and on. The great Jimmy Seville, best friends of, of Prince Philip, the husband of Queen Elizabeth, best friends of King Charles, right? Yeah. They were seen all the time together. And Andrew, of course, the brother of Charles, his name is right there front and center on the list at Epstein Island. And he's apologized and he's paid damages for the women he mistreated. And now Charles knows that his name is going to surface. And because of that, you see this push for him to abdicate and to give the throne to William. Now, I can tell you, with the abdication of Charles III, it's an extremely important moment in terms of the history. And it's also extremely important in the world because what William does is going to be extremely significant. If William follows the path of his father and decides to become the defender of the faiths, instead of the defender of the faith, then he's going to, he too will lose his throne and they will, and the monarchy will come to an end. And that will be the end of the United Kingdom. The kingdom will, will break up. It will not be united any further. And that will be the end of the United Kingdom. If William, on the other hand, comes to embrace the faith and wakes up and leaves all of that nonsense that his father brought to the table behind, leaves all of it behind, and says, I am here to lead uh, Britain as I am have been commissioned, as Queen Elizabeth readily understood, by the way. If he comes to believe that and comes to understand that, there could be a, an extremely significant turn in Britain, and the healing of Ephraim could begin. But, you know, we saw the passage of prophecy here, right here, in Isaiah saying, Ephraim is going to get blistered. Yeah. It's going to get blistered by the hand of Yah. And this is coming, I think, is coming very, very good. But let's see. Let's just... There will be a remnant. There will be a remnant. There um, will be. And, you know, yeah. and course, you know, the remnant, we talked about this last night, about the European remnant stands a very good chance of fulfilling the prophecies of von Rendsburg on the Western Cape of Africa. And, you know, this is something carefully to consider in South Africa because, you know, the 34 million Zulu population in South Africa is really all in the eastern Transvaal. That's where almost all of that population lives. The western side of the western side of South Africa is populated by different group. And it's not as populated. And it's a completely different area. And if you recall, this is where the Boers originally entered. South Africa was on the Western Cape. And the von Rensburg prophecy concerns the Western Cape. Yeah. And so yeah. this may very well be the refuge for uh, many of the people fleeing persecution in the EU. Very possible that we're going to see that happen, particularly in light of the fact that the current status right now, and I don't want to get too far afield, too far into this, but the current status right now is very clear that Ukraine has completely lost the war. They're completely defeated. Yeah. Now, Biden is talking about putting American troops in Ukraine. NATO is talking about putting NATO troops in Ukraine. And my answer to that is, with what armor? He gave it all to Ukraine. With what ammunition? He gave it all to Ukraine. It's already been blown up. What are you going what, to, what, what stuff are you going to use to enter into that field? Yeah. And, so there and there's and and Vladimir Putin's language two days ago was very rough. 
He said the UK and the US is nothing but a bunch of liars that have spit on the rest of the world for the last 40 years. That sounds to me like justification for I've got the, I have moral justification in blowing you into some greens. That's right. And, you know, so all of this stuff and of course the... Go ahead, Chris. No, no, no. I was just wondering, uh, you know, is that is that to to rebuild the Nazi kind of uh, you know territory? That's just the option. Uh, what also what I wanted to ask you was what do you think about Charles being murdered? Um, and then maybe coming a mir miraculous uh, recovery after three days, you know? Yeah, but the head that idea. I think the head wound is actually, did you know that William, who now has the coat of arms that Charles used to have, that okay. William almost died from a head wound. He got hit with a golf club and it almost killed him. Okay. So if you want to talk about a leader who's recovered from a miraculous head wound, it's William. And William has the coat of arms that Charles used to have. So you have some real issues. So it's, and of course, Charles, you know, the fact that he took Charles III, I really feel sorry for him. I don't know what he was thinking. Charles I was beheaded for being a traitor written by Oliver Cromwell. And Charles II was a, uh, you know, uh, was the guy who really betrayed the United States by allowing the Jesuits to set up a colony in Maryland. And, you know, and now here's Charles III, the defender of the faiths, claiming he's a direct descendant of Mohammed and so on and so forth. You know, and so you, there's some really difficult issues with Charles III. And uh, I don't I don't know if he's going to be assassinated or whatever. I suspect he's just going to abdicate and him and Camilla are going to go take off somewhere in Scotland and live quietly ever after. And William yeah, it's and just, it's just interesting, well. the heraldry, you know, which, uh, you know, you know, the story, uh, um, uh, Antichrist and the cover of tea, etc. And um, then, and then him, and then also his estranged son, uh, which is red and hairy, hairy. Yeah, red so, and hairy. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there's a couple of scenarios there that you can sort of think about. Um, you know, and, and who knows, maybe he wipes him out, you know, um, anyway, th that's. Yeah, it's hard to say, but that is a very interesting anomaly. Yeah. Red and Harry, right? The second son, Red and Harry. And, right, two nations were in your womb. Right? And with Diana, we definitely have a condition of two nations, right? Phil, did you want to add in here something? Brother? Well, I was just curious about that hyksos word. If that was a Hebrew word or where that the etymology of it, if because sometimes when you put words on the old whiteboard, things pop out. So I was just curious about that, sir. Yeah, well, that is a really good question because I don't know if it's a Hebrew word or not. But if we look at the spelling, we're going to find something that would be interesting if we look at the Hebrew spelling. And I'll show yeah. you why. Because when you talk about hypsos, we could see here. Uh, something that's going to appear that's going to be pretty interesting, which is that you could end up with two prefixes. Okay, so you have the he, then you have the cough, then you have, and this is poss possibly the way it was done, like this, samic, vav, samic. 
Now, so when you say hyksos, then you would say you could put in the hyric yod here too. There could be a hyric yod. So here's the yod here, and then you have the uh, hyric here, hyric yod, ike, and this would have a um, this would have a shva underneath it, and then this would have probably a holum here. So sos, ike, sos. However, if this holum was not there, but rather here, then this becomes sus. And then this would be two prefixes. And, and these two prefixes, this would be the, and this would be like. So hyksos would literally translate as to like the horse. Okay, that's one way of looking at it. Like this, quick, like this. A quick follow-up. What if, if that cough was a koof, would it still be a prefix? Uh, yeah, let's take a look at that idea if it's if it's the koof. Um, um, no, that would not be a prefix. That okay. would not be a prefix. So then we would we'd be dealing with a different word. We'd be dealing with ike. And uh, and again, I think the Herak Yod uh, would appear in that in that case. That would be the Herak Yod. And just to say. If it was the koof, that is, yeah, that's something a little bit different. Okay. Uh, and yeah, I'm not quite sure how that's going to play out. Um, let me see here in just a minute. Uh, yeah, and so, and, and is there such a word in the Hebrew that I don't know? I don't know if there is or not. I don't know. And so if, you know, when we're talking about the, the heek, that would be like heek or hike. Come on, Miles, would you work, please? Here we go. That would be like heek or hike. And hike, sus, or hike, sos. It strikes me that when you have the SOS at the end, that that is most likely in a Greek ending hmm. Greek ending and if that is a Greek ending then it could have been hike so and then the s was added to Greekify it and so the name then is going to appear in literature that's going to emerge after Alexander's conquest of the area so that was probably not their original name it was probably a latter identification but on, I was yeah. just wondering, like, maybe this would lead us to the fact that it's not a name at all and more of a description of what they represented. So maybe something for another data to dig into. Yeah, yeah, I'll take a look at that and see if I can find something. But you're right. It could be very much representing something that they represented, uh, you know, like Nomad. You know, the, the, then the Nomad showed up. Is that the name of the tribe? No. 
uh, but that was what something they represented. And so I'll have to take a look at that and see. And then it's also possible that it appears in an Egyptian hieroglyph. And the Egyptian hieroglyph, you have to remember that Alan Wilson demonstrated that the hieroglyphs were not properly translated. And they completely retranslated them using the Welsh language as the standard. And they found a whole bunch of errors in the original transcription of the Rosetta Stone and other, and other deals. And so the cartouche may not spell out Hyksos like we think it spells out. So, I mean, all of those things are on the table. So it's, we're going to have to take more of a look at it. We're, we're going to look at that in the Empire class, I'm sure. We'll get into it. Okay, Tony. Hey, can you hear me? Yes, I can. So uh, going back to Esau, intermarrying with the tribes and stuff, um, to me, and I, I'd like to know how you feel about this. To me, it seems like some of those tribes were Nephilim tribes that he interbreeded with. And if that was the case, would there have been Nephilim also in Egypt when he moved into that area? And is that where we get a lot of these weird hydroglyphs, Egyptian hydroglyphs of uh, these giant... The chimeras and stuff? Yes. Yeah, and those chimeras that are in the Egyptian hieroglyphs, they're not just there. We see some interesting stuff in the Sumer record, in the record in Sumer. And in particular, when you start talking about Anunnaki and these guys with wings and, and uh, bird heads, you know, that it's possible that there was intermarrying into Nephilim or Fallen Watcher DNA, that there was some Fallen Watcher DNA in some of those tribes. Um, it's not necessarily clear it's not necessarily resonant that that's the case, but it's a possibility. Uh, we do know that Ishmaelites and so on and so forth uh, were uh, were in there, and Canaanites were in there. And there was a third tribe, too. I don't remember what it was, Midianites or who it was, but there was a, a fourth one, a, a holy Bama was of that fourth tribe. And so you can see some very interesting kind of connotations there. So were they Nephilim? Was there a, a triple seed? Uh, there, you know, there's a lot of stuff that happened that caused the triple helix, including passing the children through the fire. See, that passing the children through the fire may have been not a flame, but rather radiation. And it was some kind of radiation that caused a transfer, caused a mutation of the DNA. And that could have been a real iffy deal. Well, let's pass the kids through the fire. And then you get a mutation. And with a lot of kids, they became disabled. Or they became, you know, some kind of, they had some kind of mutation like cancer or something going. But other kids became smarter. Other kids became faster. Other kids became stronger. Some radiation, who knows? But it was an if, it was a chance. And and so this was a, a form of worship that they experienced in the ancient age. I'm not saying this is certain. We're sure of this, but it's possible. Okay. Yeah, thanks for that, Tony. And there's been a lot of discussion about that. There are some assumptions that that was, in fact, Nephilim DNA or demonic, you know, uh, triple helix DNA or whatever. Okay. Knudsen, do you have something for us? Hello. Yeah, hi. Um, I just had a quick question. Um, I was wondering if you had any recommendations um, to place, like, all the books of the Sefer in order of like the history of how it all laid out. Well, the um, Sefer is in a quasi-chronological order. If you got into a real serious chronological order, the Psalms would be completely displaced. Even portions of the Psalms would be displaced. 
because some of them were married together. Uh, some books would have to be cut in half and split. So we didn't do a, a, a dead chronological order, but but the Sefer is in a very much a chronological, a quasi-chronological order. And so when you get up to Devri Hayamim, and then Daniel appearing there, and Daniel is not with the other prophets. Daniel is removed, put up there, because Daniel was what they call a second temple writing. And so when you get to Devri Hayamim, you know, first and second chronicles, uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and, and first Ezra, second Ezra, which is three and four Ezra, Daniel, Shushana, Bell and the Dragon, all of that stuff is what's called uh, Beit Hekal, his second temple writings, and so they're there. That's why they're segregated after the Psalms. You know, in your regular Bible, you have Ezra before the book of Psalms. How do you have a book about, you know, trying to build the second temple appear in your Bible before the first temple is even contemplated? How does, who, who came up with that methodology? I don't know. But we segregated it in a much more chronological format. And you know, and then there was a big debate about should Enoch be the first book, right? Should Jubilees be the first book? Well, you know, the Bible begins within the phrase in the beginning. So we retain the Pentateuch, Moshe's Pentateuch, as the first five books. Then it's immediately followed with second Genesis or little Genesis, Jubilees, and then Hano, all of which have discussion about the antediluvian period. And so this had to be carried in there. And so that's why the chronology is, it's a, I'm not going to say it's a chronological order. It's not a perfect chronological order, but it's a quasi-chronological order. So for the most part, to retain the integrity of the integrity of the books, it is in a chronological order. Okay. Yeah, I just I just recently got through Ezra and that was that was pretty amazing to me. Like just oh getting through all that was fantastic. <laughs> And then I, I just kind of got me thinking then, um, yeah, because like you say, it's close to, you know, things that happened in Jeremiah or Daniel or like all that kind of, and I was kind of like, ah, oh, I wonder how I could place it all. But if it's, yeah, so the suffer is, it's good the way it is then basically. <laughs> yeah, I think that's okay. the chronological order is we're going to get it. We're not going to change anything to, to tweak it. Okay. okay. Okay, All right. Good, thank you. Thanks, Vincent. Thank you. Stacy, did you have something you want to say there, brother? Yes, sir. I was just I had a quick question about Aaron's rod. I know that the book of Jasher refers to uh Moses's father-in-law, Yethro, that he was one of the counselors with uh Pharaoh and Mitzram. And when he left, he took the rod and planted it in his garden when he finally let Moses out of prison. After a while, Moses was able to retrieve that. So I know where that came from. But where does Aaron's rod come from? You know, that's a great question, Stacey, and I don't have the answer for you mm -hmm. because I was absolutely shocked at looking at Aaron's rod mm -hmm. and the word there in, in, the, in the Hebrew is Tanin. His mm -hmm. rod became a dragon, not a serpent, not Nakash. And uh, so Aaron's rod was, I think, miraculously given to him and the Yah. Now, I think Aaron's rod is also something really important because remember, Aaron's rod ends up with the Ark of the Covenant. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, when Solomon opens up the Ark of the Covenant, Aaron's rod isn't there. Mm -hmm. Why isn't it there? Because the psalmist tells us in Psalm 23, your rod and your staff comfort me, says David. I took the rod. David took the rod out of the Ark of the Covenant 
and it's my belief that I have any, any solid proof in the scripture, but it's my mm -hmm. belief that it was the rod of Aaron that was passed from David to Solomon, from Solomon to Rehoboam, and so on and so forth, through the 14 kings. And this is why you don't see Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, or Zedekiah listed in Matthew 1, because they did not have the rod of Aaron. The rod of Aaron was in the hands of Yechon Yahweh, who had been taken to Babylon. And so this rod was the scepter that was in the hands of Judah, as prophesied in Genesis 49. This was the scepter in the hands of Judah, and it was the rod of Aharon. And this rod of Aharon went from David all the way to Yechon Yahu. Yechon Yahu was taken into captivity. And then you have what's called the Exilarch kings. The next 14 generations are the kings of Yasharel who cannot sit on the throne because Yah has cursed it. They cannot sit on the throne. But I believe that staff of Aharon was passed from one to the next, to the next, to the next, until it gets to Joseph, the father of Miriam, who was Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph of Arimathea had the rod of Aharon in his hand. And when they, when he took all of the disciples out, including Miriam and her sister, who were his two daughters, mm -hmm. took them out of the Holy Land, and they went to Cornwall in Britain. He took with him the rod of Aharon. And the rod of Aharon was planted in Britain and would not come into the possession of any other king thereafter, but had grown into the fruitful 12 hides of land that were given to Joseph of Arimathea. Now, look, there's corruption very quickly thereafter because the land that was given to Joseph of Arimathea is now Cardiff, Wales. And Cardiff, Wales, it, the, the, the name Cardiff comes from the word care deed. And it's the place of the agreement. And this is the place where traders in, in, in the Welsh kings sold out Britain to gain, to give Rome, Rome the chance to control in exchange for the Britons being able to select Caesar. So you can have Roman control of the islands, but all the Caesars from here on out have to be Brits. And so the very first pope was not Peter. Very first pope in Rome was Lucius. And Lucius was the son of Caradoc, a Welsh king. And Lucius, we know as Luke, wrote the Gospel of Luke. He was a healer. He was a brilliant man, fluent in multiple languages, traveled with Paul. And Paul appointed him the bishop of Rome, not Peter. Peter never set foot in Rome. Mm -hmm. Never set foot in Rome. That's all Roman mythology. And so Lucius was a Brit. Constantine was born in York in Britain. His mother was from Britain. And so you see that this deal that was made in, in Wales, in Cardiff, was a deal that said, okay, well, you can take control of the British Isles. You can overthrow the Druid priests. You can overthrow the House of Zarak. You can overthrow that bloodline on the condition that there's a Brit sitting on the throne of Rome. And that happened until Constantine's grandson died. And then all bets were off. And then everything you see from that point forward is a war between the English on the Isle and the Romans trying to gain control. And it goes up until Henry VIII kicks them all out. And then even after that, there's a civil war with Charles I trying to bring Rome back in. They behead him. Oliver Cromwell reasserts the Protestant ethic. Charles II comes to power, and Charles II's son, James II, tries to bring Rome back in. Another civil war, 1689. 
And this is the Battle of the Boyne and the Germans come in and they, the Germans forever kept Rome out. But John, King John in 1213, signed over an edict giving all British land to, to the Pope in perpetuity. And so you see, you know, there's just a bunch of treason that goes that on that thousand years of history. So Aaron's rod, now, now Aaron's rod, remember, turned into a dragon. And right. the story is that Aaron's rod ended up in Wales. And the flag, the Welsh flag, is the flag of a dragon. Hmm. And it's the only flag, by the way, of the four nations that constitute the United Kingdom, Wales, England, Scotland, and Ireland. It's the only flag that doesn't appear on the Union Jack. The Union Jack consists of the Cross of St. George, which is England, the Cross of St. Andrew, which is Scotland, and the Cross of St. Patrick, which is Ireland. That's what's on the Union Jack. Gotcha. There is no representation of the Welsh flag on that on that moniker. Mm. So it's a very interesting combination. We've got some very interesting things going on there, Stacey, that are, uh, you know, in terms of the first nation to accept the Gospels was Britain. That's the, that happened in 36 AD, 300 years before Rome would deal with it. Rome killed hundreds of thousands of believers after that. And then the slaughter that took place in Britain by Romans was untenable. And they burned all the Sabbath keepers right on up until the 11th century AD in, in England, burning Sabbath keepers. And they were burning Sabbath keepers in Mexico in the 19th century. Gotcha. So uh, this is the kind of uh, the kind of work that's happened out of the church. And uh, so anyway, but what is the what is the final disposition of the dragon? You know, I don't know. I don't have this. I don't have it. But I do know that dragons are explicitly discussed in Scripture. Mm -hmm. One of the creations that's given to us in Genesis one and two, dragons were created. Mm -hmm. And and what are they, and and where are they, and will we see them return in the end days? But if, as Chris was talking about earlier about the demonic stuff that goes on, because I recently came out of the church, I've, I've been a deliverance minister for several several years, and I know America, which America is named after, is the dragon Quetzalcoatl. So, oh, really, yes, sir, that's what America means. America. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, when you talk about Quetzalcoatl, you're talking about this Aztec dragon mm -hmm. god. Correct. And, you know, the Aztecs and the Mayans, like the Mayans, we know for sure, well, I shouldn't say we know for sure, but it's my belief that the Mayan culture teaches that the leader of the Mayans was Tula. Mm -hmm. And if you go back and you look in scripture, you'll find the firstborn son of Issachar was Tula. And the Mayans and the Cherokee are the same DNA. And the Cherokee tell you, it's not Cher Cherokee, it's Shakari. And we are of the children of Issachar, Ishakari. That's where the name Cherokee comes from. And by the way, they've had the name Yawa forever, as have the Iroquois have the, the name Yawa forever. Mm -hmm. And and here they have the same DNA as the Mayans, which appears to be the DNA of Issachar. And they even named Tula as their founder. So you can see that this idea of the dragon, did it come out of Mexico or out of the Aztecs or was it brought to the Aztecs? You know, mm -hmm. again, again, these are all great questions, right? And I'm so glad to hear you're a deliverance minister, Stacy. I'm really glad you're with us. Uh, thank you for your part of this group.
Oh, I'm glad to be here. And another one more thing was when uh, Chris was talking about that ring, the G on the Masonic ring, as I've studied it, I was under the impression that the G stood for Gabriel, which was Satan's original name before he was cast out of heaven. Yeah. And Gabriel, I mean, you know, again, I think one of the best studies I've ever heard about Gabriel is uh, suddenly Alexander, I think of Alexandra, suddenly, uh, apparently Alexandra, something like this. Anyway, mm -hmm. she did a great expose on Gabriel. Absolutely mm -hmm. fantastic. Mm -hmm. And when you understand yeah, probably, probably. Probably Alexander. Probably. Yeah. And mm -hmm. when she did that study on, on Gabrielle, you know, it's very interesting because Isaiah 65 says, you guys are worshiping God and many, God and money, right? And when you look at those names, it's fate and fortune. Mm -hmm. And so somebody who was doing the English scripture decided to use instead of Elohim, let's use the God of good luck. Mm -hmm. choose the god of fortune we'll choose that name god we'll put that in here good luck you know and uh, so i found that very interesting but that's probably short for gabriel mm -hmm. who was this great saint who taught abortion who taught seduction and it's said in the book of enoch that gabriel was the one who seduced eve mm -hmm. yes, you know you, you you the great liar the great deceiver the original the original satan if you will the original hasatan and, uh, you know, and so, uh, yeah, Gabriel is a very interesting name that he would appear and that this would be the case, right? Mm -hmm. That, uh, uh, yeah, it's absolutely fascinating stuff. And uh, like I say, if anybody who hasn't seen that video, it's worth watching. And she talks about St. Germain and so on and so forth. And this, and this uh, how St. Germain's involvement with Francis Bacon and the development of the King James scripture. Mm -hmm where we get, and yet, the King James is so much better than the Westcott Court stuff. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, there was deception given in the King James to teach you Lord and God and to ignore the critical names. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and look, I love Miles Coverdale. I think Miles Coverdale did wonderful work in the Coverdale 1539 Bible. Uh, but nonetheless, he yielded to the Jews who were telling him, no, 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 no. No, yeah, wow. No, 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 no. Can I interrupt for a moment? Could Let's, you please tell us the name of that lady and what you're talking about? Either maybe even type it in the chat so that we can follow up on it. If I can get my mouse to work, yeah, her name is okay. probably Alexandria. Uh, yeah, yeah, if you could okay. type it in the chat for us in the name, that would be appreciated. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I'm putting it in. She is, she's just a young gal who has done some videos and I'm not going to recommend all of her videos, but she talks about Gabrielle mm -hmm. and I think the video is named St. Germain. And she talks about, she's showing this whole evolution of this particular demon and how this demon has had a massive control over things and how Francis Bacon was reincarnation of Gabrielle and who claimed to be St. Germain and on and on and on and on and kinds of things that were done in the King James done by Gabrielle, done by St. Germain. And she, you know, anyway, it's a very fascinating video and I'm not saying it's hundred percent true, but I'm just saying it's worth watching if you want to try to understand Gabrielle. And uh, yeah, it's very good stuff. Yeah. Thanks for bringing it up, Stacey. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Okay. Angelo, you're going to finish this off here today. 
Thank you very much. I appreciate Shalom again, everyone. Um, I had a question uh, to to tie in with this one thing again with the, with the dragon. Um, do you have a, an edition, either electronically or on a published paper, of Revelation with its four hundred references to uh, Hebrew Scripture? Am I incorrect in saying it, that? Is it's it the in the sefer, Angelo. It's in the sefer. If you get is it in the one that I have? I bought a sefer like five. You know, mine is like five years ago, I believe. Something no, no, on that. It, it's not in that one. It's was okay. in the third edition, and it appears in the millennium edition. And okay. so we have all the footnotes in Revelation. Time that's third, third Revelation. edition. Third. Well, if you buy if you buy a new sefer now, you're going to get the millennium edition. It has all okay. of those footnotes in Revelation. Oh, perfect. It's perfect. something I, I something I went to Brad with a few years back and said, "Look, people who say you know we we decided we wanted to make the Old Testament new in the New Testament." And so we get to third edition or millennium edition. We have all the quotes from the New Old Testament indented in the New Testament. So you can see every place where the Old Testament right. is referenced. You can see it at a hundred feet, right? You're just doing a hundred feet visual over the top. You can see all the quotes, like in Hebrews or in Romans. You see these loads of quotes out of the Old Testament. So New Testament teachers said, "We don't need the Old Testament. What are you talking about? It's all quotes out of the Old Testament." And then, and then when you get to when you get to the Book of Revelation, the whole thing is taken from the Old Testament, and all those footnotes are there. And not only is the Old Testament links there, but we also have links to the Book of Four Ezra. We have books links to the Book of Enoch. We have books uh, links to the Book of Jubilees. All of those are included in those footnotes. So you can see how those books, you know, there's no question in my mind that Enoch was being read by the disciples at the time of Mashiach. Mashiach makes direct reference to it. Peter makes direct reference to it. And Jude quotes from it. And yet you have people who are willing to come out and tell you that Enoch is heresy and should be burned. Were you calling Jude a liar? You know, were you calling Jude a heretic? You know, I mean, it, it's, it's just amazing to me that the closed the closed mindedness of people and many of these people who are ready to burn the book of Enoch and ready to make these denunciations have never even read the whole of the New Testament. They've never even read the whole of the New Testament, let alone read all of Scripture. But they're out there with their flamethrower ready to burn everybody at the stake. In this thought, um, in in the uh, in the Sefer Revelation, Archesion thirteen three. And I saw one of his heads as, and, and what you have here is as it were wounded to death. And the only references I had in the last number of years was going a little deeper in the Greek. So I just wanted to share this thought with you. I thought it was kind of interesting. Um, in the beginning part in Greek, it's kind of dead on. And one of the heads of it sort of like was as, like as could be like as this. And then it points to this word, basically F. Right. So this is the interesting part. It could be read. I'm not saying it is because like Greek, you have choice. There's a lot of choice, contextual choice. In the case of unveiling, you might have to wait till it happens to take your context to see your choice, in other words, right? So it could possibly read as having been slain to death, the plague as in plague of this pestilence of it was therapied in the sense that, of healing. That is correct. That is, ab I think that's absolutely correct. Right. I yeah. did a discussion on this back in 2020, that that language did in fact make reference to the plague. 
not necessarily a head wound, but the plague. Plague. And it was therapy, like it was served. And it, you see, the context is the immediate scripture after that says, and they worship the dragon. Remember, the dragon gives authority. So the whole earth is involved in something here where they're marveling and they're and they're being taken in. They're they're healing. They're, they're serving. They're you know, it's therapy. It's all of these things, like all of the above, and some masterful thing happens. Yeah. And you're looking well, at what you're talking about. When you're talking about this, this whole thing was mind-boggling because when the pandemic hit, yeah, all of a sudden revelation was just being revealed. Yeah. You know, by their pharmacia, the yeah. whole world be deceived. I mean, that's clear in Revelation. The 18. first rider, right? The first rider the going first out over the toxin. Yeah. And the the rider going out with full authority, overcoming everything that tries to challenge it with a toxin can be a thread, fabric thread, seeded through the whole earth. And at the same time, a, a poisonous oh my good. I mean and you're looking at the WHO organization with the with the with the garland there, the corona you know, there it is, and you're looking at the whole thing with the serpent, you know, Asclepius, and you're going, hello, here we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really is, really is my mother. And we're going to see now, I mean, like, as we come into 2024, and I want to give a story over here today. Focus, and, you know, this, uh, the world's, but not religion has made it all about lust of the flesh, lust of the uh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, you know, it looks good. It's this great big grand show. And actually, it's actually very, very simple. Um, are you in his will? You know, does, does Elohim trust with him for the car, so to speak? Um, we're, we're speaking about that next week because the thing, and I'm doing another donkey quote, but it's literally. I don't know of anything in my life that has hindered my paralyzing word. Yeah, where where are you? Where are you guys? Can you guys turn on a camera? It's a really interesting thing to to be able to trust Elohim with that. It's interesting. Moshe would gone through such an affliction, such a thing, you know, and that obviously Yeshua is the example of humility. I don't think they're talking to that. It's a recording. It's from the olive branch in Leicester, but for some reason it's being played here. Well, I'll just mute it. There, that took care, that took care of that problem. All right, good. Yeah. So anyway, Angelo, I think that's uh I think you raised a very good question, but I wanted to raise this as we close. 2024 is going to be a very interesting year. And you know, as Chris was mentioning earlier, we need to trust in Yah. We need to trust to be people of faith, and that's what we need to be. And we need to be the remnant, and we need to be a light shining in the darkness, and we need to be all these things. And I think there's plenty of reason to be excited about what Yah is doing, because this is going to be a year of reckoning. And those people who committed all those sins back in 2020 and 2021 and 2022, there was a reason why they committed those sins, because they had gotten away with really egregious behavior before that, and they didn't think there was going to be any accountability. And now accountability is coming, and it's coming to the Pope, and it's coming to the King, and it's coming to the corporate leaders, and it's coming to the big businessmen, and it's coming to all these people who said, we're just going to kill all you people because we don't like you. And now this reckoning is coming. And the hand of Yah, just as the prophecy in Isaiah said today, 
I'm going to raise up this thing that's going to completely overcome you, going to completely take you down. And that's what's coming this year. So we need to be kind of excited about that kind of thing. And we also need to be true to our purpose. Remember that his burden is easy. His yoke is light. That's who we are. We are people of joy, living a natural life in Yah, that he has blessed us with his mercy and with his kindness and with a way of life that is wonderful and beautiful. And this is who we are as human beings. Let us not go back into condemning ourselves and bashing ourselves in the head because we failed to cross every T and dot every I or put the nickel goat on the proper word. Let us instead glory in the fact that Yah's mercy is complete. He understands what it is to be a human being. He loves us in spite of ourselves. And he is carrying us in the winds of his breath into a new millennium, into a new era, into a new thing. Let's be excited about that. Okay. I was thinking about today's Torah, to, just to, to, to drive that home. I have come down to see what has taken place here, and this is what I'm going to do for my people. So he's, I mean, you think about it right now in real time, in the very near future, we raise our heads erect and sing hallelujah all the more and be that light. Hallelujah. hallelujah. Yeah, amen. Okay, so let me pray, and uh, we will say hallelujah together. Okay, hallelujah. Uh, the king of glory, the king of the presence, the king of our lives, the creator and the maker of heaven and earth, he who has called us into his family, he who has blessed us with his name, he who covers us with his wings, our strong power, our fortress, our mighty El, who walks before us, who walks behind us, who opens doors no one can shut, who closes doors that no one can open, who has made a way for his people on a path in through the wilderness, a narrow path, a path with a wall of fire on one side, water on the other. But he's called us to it, and he's going to ensure that we make it. We lift your name on high, and we say, Yahweh, you are Elohim. We are your children. We are your people. Look upon us with your favor, Yahweh. Bless us with your strong provision. Be our maker. Be our king. Be our judge. Be our lawgiver. May we be your people. May you find us faithful when you return to the earth. May we be a blessing unto you in how we walk and how we carry ourselves. Father, we lift up the people in this fellowship now that you would bless us and keep us. Take care of us in accordance with your will. You would do miraculous signs and miraculous things for people who need healing for people who need uh, psychological healing, for people who need emotional health, for people who need spiritual health, for people who need financial health. Father, would you bless us and keep us and move in a, in a direction that is mighty with power and authority, that your name might be glorified in us. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Amen. And thank you, brothers and sisters. I'm so glad you guys were here today. Thanks for the great Sabbath. It was just a blessing. I will try to get this posted. Probably it's not going to be posted in, until Monday. This is going to take a while to convert. And I'm traveling, so it's probably not going to be up until Monday. But we will we'll get it up then, okay? All right, blessings and thanks. Hallelujah.
Next week. 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 Next week.